James, that's actually the place I want to start. Let's talk about your experience in the pubs. How, how are you doing, sir? How, how is life? What's going I'm, on? I'm very happy. My experience is in the pub. This is my favorite topic because I adore the pub. The pub is my favorite place on planet Earth. It's where the boys can go, have a fucking pint in it, and just relax and watch a bit of footy. Watch a bit of footy, yeah? Oh how about... <laughs> How about afterwards? Bazzers, mate. Fucking Bazzers. Class. How about, how about after that? What do you do then? What, do you go down to... Or no, you'd probably go watch the live footy matches, mate, in Bazzers Bar and Grill, would you, yeah? With some chips, some kebabs, and some munchie boxes, yeah? Well, this is the thing. I don't like football. I think it's terrible. But I like it being there because it's English culture. So I'd go yeah. ha have a few fucking pints with the boys, but have the footy on in the background. That's it. Everyone else goes off to the clubs afterwards. But I will stay with the best of the fucking boys. Continue having a few fucking pints. Neck them down, mate. Have some, have some, have some chippies, some munchies, and go enjoy my evening. <laughs> would you right? Would you be like, all right, boom, mate? All right, all right, lads. Let's say I'm getting munchie box between us all, yeah. And we'll yes. Just, uh, oh, that's fantastic. Pints, that's fantastic. Do you ever dress like this dude here? <laughs> you mean just sunglasses indoors with the yellowest teeth and neck cancer? No. <laughs> Already is like, and then I love the women. You see this a lot in Ireland as well, where they put on so much fake tan they come out orange. That's the thing. I wanted to ask you about that with Irish girls. Do Irish girls think that's attractive to appear like a pumpkin? Uh, yeah, it's this. This is a tough one about Ireland because you'd always meet them. I'd meet them on the street. I remember I was running around with me camera one day, and I lost the video, but I wish I had it still. But I was talking to a, a girl, and uh, I, I was making fun of her because her her hand was orange, but her face was white. It was literally <laughs> the difference between the background here and this. And so I was like saying, put up your hand. And then she put it beside her face and it was like two different colors. It was like the, if she had a green, she'd have the Irish flag if she did it all across herself. So it was absolutely, absolutely nuts. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a I think... never understood it either. Girls used to do that all the time in secondary school where they would, uh, they'd had put so much of it on that their collar like this would just be like brown or black with all the crap. And they're like, aren't I so pretty? I'm a pumpkin. It's like, no, you're not pretty. That's not normal. You look unhealthy. Jaundice. Christ. I think, I think they're bronzing like, because uh, a lot of our culture is influenced by America and the makeup and all that stuff. So you see those American girls, you know, from California and the South and they're all like really well tanned. And uh, then like an Irish girl, a poor Irish girl would look at herself and be like, I literally look like a ghost. And so she'd, um, she'd grab all the, the tan she could and lump it on because you need a lot when you're Irish. And then it turns out it just makes you bronze pretty much. So during the summer, it's not as bad. But during the winter and whatnot, God, it's intense. God, it's intense. Yeah, my, my fiance, she's Northern Irish and she, um, she is the whitest human who ever lived. She's like a snowman. And it, there, I guess there must be some kind of insecurity when you look at the beauty standards from getting like that on TV, where everyone is kind of uh, not even necessarily brown, yeah. but orange. So I guess you've got to sort of blend in. Maybe we should do the same thing. We should sort of cake ourselves up so that we blend into the crowd. That'd be class, man. And we could be like, oh, all right, well, no, what we do if we, because we don't need to do that because we're, we're Norths. So we don't need to, we don't need to do that. What we need to do Fucking is get a. Right, mate. Fucking right. Preach, mate. <laughs> What we need to do, mate, is we need to get uh, a proper a jersey, mate. Like, you know, North FC jersey, and that's it, mate. And maybe gel eye a bit, you know? Yellow teeth. I yeah, I, I do indeed get get you, mate. I can't I can't do this. I go into poshness after a while and try and do good grammar, but it doesn't work. Okay, right. Well, let's let's continue on in this little adventure because this is quite an interesting one. This Norths. We were talking about the Norths last week, and I was trying to relate it to Nietzsche, and I think I've actually succeeded in relating it to Nietzsche here today. We'll we see can, about that. We'll see about that. We can begin to talk about um, <laughs> talk about. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> off, mate! Fucking frogs. Don't even have your kebabs in it. <laughs> Oi, Pierre! 
Fuck off, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking frogs. Don't even come out here. You know, went to Spain on holiday and I met a well sound Turk bloke making a fucking lush kebab, right? <laughs> lush, that's right. They always say lush. It's always Mallorca as well when they go on holiday, in it? Or, or a Greek island somewhere like that. It's never anywhere interesting. So, Los Letos are this place and fast. <laughs> What's wrong with all of their necks? Why do their necks sort of pulse with, like, riddled with tumors? It's disgusting. <laughs> it's just, I think it's flab, man. I think it's flab. <laughs> so, his, arms, his arms aren't flabby. It's just his fucking, like, frog blub thing. So, we discussed the Norths last, um, last time we were discussing how they, they, were subjugated by the incoming vikings and then they merged together and and became the master race who ruled over all the world through the british empire and so we're going to talk about how they have again fallen out of grace and lost their empire and we're going to talk about how they may with their noble norse in north instincts like you know they've got those north instincts where they really just are ch like they're chad they're real men they're, they're, they're juicy they know what they want and all that they know how to they're assertive and all that we're going to see how this master instinct may again pull them towards the stars in this story so we're going to take a look I and mean, for example i want to show their their profound north instincts you've got a uh, this is during the trenches when they're fighting against the germans and nietzsche often talks about resentment and he says that when you resent your enemy it, it usually leads you to hate but this is the load of norths <laughs> this is a load of north <laughs> during the war when they were literally killing each other with the with the old uh, the krauts over here look at this dude's head in the <laughs> it's got no head and uh <laughs> so what they did is they, they didn't even hate their enemy during christmas one day they all got up and they started playing fucking footy mate all right you're a cracking shot with that fucking rifle eh fritz <laughs> Ricochet, Ricochet almost took me fucking eye out, you lunatic. What a fucking bloody legend. What a fag, yeah? You bastard. <laughs> you can definitely see that happening. That it was a beautiful story, though, outside of all of this. The fact that they sort of broke down and wanted to actually spend time with each other on Christmas Day. We have no, I don't know how those stories propagated themselves, but that, that would be a wonderful thing. And I hope it took place like this. I really no, hope it took place like this. What a fucking fag, mate. Fucking catch. Look at look at your man with the sausages, like you know. This this is how it went down. This little this little squirt here running around playing a bit of footy, mate. I, lo I love the krauts, man. The krauts are as bad. They're the they're the kraut norths. So we we show that they have these noble instincts. Like by a Nietzschean criteria, these people don't resent. They can they can love their enemy. And this is what Nietzsche says: is that you must love your enemy in an authentic way. And that's not by submitting. That's by seeing them as worthy competitors. And after after the fight. Of life you can shake their hand and be like oh, i actually respect you even though they're going to kill each other tomorrow so so yeah. they have these instincts they're there you can see them in the norths and this this is going to bring them to the stars so we must talk, talk a little bit about the future because of course times are changing and uh we must talk about how we get the ubermensch out of the north north tech North what, Tech. This this lore is expanding. Please. Oh yeah, it, it this is there's not much of this now. This is quite fresh, but um, there is this this idea that once the Norths take these noble instincts and and again tame them towards the stars, we will get North Tech, and you we will we will get the Uber North, and this is going to bring us to <laughs> <laughs> this is going to bring us to the future in a way you won't believe, and then again. They will take over. As you can see in his mouth here, you've got nonce. Fucking nonce. North Evie. 
Is, what, what's that guy called? Is he Baza or Terry? Baza, yeah, it's Baza. It's Baza, mate. And then you've got um, you've got their arms here. They've got it's full of carling. Carling. Oh no! <laughs> it says on his little arm, right? It says Carling, get some down, you bruv. <laughs> carling is piss water, absolute piss water. It's terrible. And we can tell from this that the Norths are truly getting guided by a divine spark. They are the chosen people, and as you can see, um, they've got like you've got God up here in his North FC jersey on his couch, <laughs> 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 and you got the caroling down here, and you got the football match, the daily rag, mate. <laughs> is he? Please tell me he's eating Greg's. That's definitely Greg's, isn't it? No, it's Munchie Box, mate. It's from the Chinese. It's no, in, the in, in in his hand, in his hand. I think that I don't, I don't know what that is, mate. I think it could be Greg's. Yeah. It's a panini of some sort, and so um that that uh, completes the cycle of the North, and we can talk about the the resentful, the naive. Let's um let's bounce into the chat briefly before we go into that, and just have a chat with um see who's in here, see what's going on, see how the boyos are doing. I enjoyed that, by the way. I appreciated that jovial touch to my day. Thank you, sir. We got Kayak. How are you doing, brother? How are you doing, brother? Hello, people. We're going to get into Nietzsche now again. We're going to talk a little bit about how he sees resentment and the naive and the strong and the weak, James. So um, any thoughts coming into this, man? Like you were, you were saying before that you're a little bit... Um, Nietzsche is a tentative thing. He pulls your mind apart in some sense. He's He can, he can screw you up and... Oh yeah, oh yeah, he absolutely screws you up. I've I've lots of different um, reservations going in because I. One of the reasons I think is that no matter what, everyone has a different take on Nietzsche. You know, when I mean we um we had this in the uh, philosophy subreddit about a week ago. A lot, I guess, quite a few of you now have come from that. So hello, it's good to meet you. Thank you for being here. Um, but there was quite a lot of different opinions radically different opinions as to what Nietzsche actually thought and some are like well he definitely didn't think what you guys are saying and others were going well yeah he definitely did but it's in this way and others were going it's in this way and that's really strange so yeah. there's something about him where people cannot disentangle what he was saying from their own projections so that's a reservation going in but at the same time it's like what Nietzsche is about to say in this is is a killer blow to all of modern politics. It's a killer blow to Christianity, at least in its modern form, a killer blow to everything. So anyone with any kind of taste and sensibilities whatsoever going into this is going to be like, yeah, well, I should probably tread carefully. So it's best I can do, I guess. Yes, yes. And I think there is something very important to take out of that is that the reason why he is so difficult to read is, of course, because he's a fantastically intelligent writer and he doesn't explain things to you in a simple way. He more assumes that you understand many of the background context that he's talking about. Like he he expects you to understand um, how the Norse were subjugated by the, the Viking races and how they created a, a European empire and all that stuff. When he's talking in these books, he expects you to understand the intricacies of, of Christian history and, and the relationship between Rome and Judea and all that. He expects you to understand that. He doesn't, he's not there to explain context. He's talking to, you know, he's talking to the top and that's something that we really have to drive home a lot. And the yes. reason, so that's one thing most people, just probably aren't as classically learned as you need to be in order to understand this. And Nietzsche often is a great person to go into because in order to understand him, you will have to go and research all the little words he uses and whatnot and all the little references. But then yeah. another one is that he is specifically targeting emotions that are so prominent in the world because the idea of a hierarchy is that you have a small group of people at the top 
and Nietzsche would call them the elite or the strong, if you will. But then the larger demographic at the bottom are the the quote unquote slaves or the weak or the powerless is, is a word actually is, is a pretty good translation of what he says. People who just don't have power. And these people usually are filled with the emotion of resentment. And so this emotion is, as Nietzsche begins to explain in this in this series of passages, this emotion is literally designed to make you hate those on top and in some way fool yourself. Like you need to keep yourself in delusion that you still have value in order to thrive. It's almost like an evolutionary response. You can't say, oh, I'm not good enough. You can't destroy your confidence. It's better to have a delusion about what you are and fight that way. And so in some sense, this emotion encourages projection. It encourages delusion. It encourages fantasy. It encourages um, the, the will to nonsense, if you will, that will that will bring you forward. And this is a big, big, big question that Nietzsche brings up is that why do we think that we are designed to see the truth? Surely we're just simply designed to survive. And if a lie helps you survive, then it's, it's going to be more evolutionarily selected than the truth that makes you delusional. Like the Gnostics, for example, they're saying the world isn't real. And then what happens is they die off because they... Because if that's true, that doesn't matter in terms of evolution. Evolution only cares that you treat the world as real or something like that. So, so the, these things become extremely interesting because he's he's poking on those psychological corners, and that's what screws people up so much. So, yeah, that's a very interesting point, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, this is a dodgy thing as well. You might say from reading the preface, like we did last time, I believe that you know Nietzsche hates the slaves and he likes the masters. You might see that because most writers they'll have a point. Why one point they want to get across to you, then they'll lay out the entire book leading up to the point. But in the initial premises which they lay out for you, you can see the end point reflected within it. So they're walking you through a story. Nietzsche doesn't do that. He doesn't begin yeah. with this is why you should hate the masters. No, he just lays out the truth. And then he doesn't actually give a specific answer either. He's laying out a dream. He's going, clearly, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. This is the way things are. And so it gives you a huge amount of responsibility to not then stop at the premise and go, ah, I know what he's going to say now. We all have to become Romans. It's like, well, no, he wasn't saying you all have to become Romans because he has a huge corpus of texts. Whereas he could have just said, go be a Roman or I hate the slaves. <laughs> way more nuanced than that. So that's it's a huge responsibility. I hope we can muster going through this. And that's a great point for what's about to come in this lecture is that he is not saying master morality is better. He actually specifically articulates that the masters are naive and that the resentful, weak and powerless are smarter. And that's the reason why they always win. And yep. so in some way, the resentful are better than the masters. But you will see the nuance in that as well. He's not saying he, he, he prefers the slaves. This is a very, very nuanced and balanced thing. And, and something James brought up there that's super interesting is that I was reading, um, I think it's Twilight of the Idols, and Nietzsche talks about how he thinks people should edu educate themselves. And he goes on this big rant about people need to learn how to see then they need to learn how to think, and then they need to learn how to um, articulate, so speech, mm -hmm. speak and write. And what's fascinating is he talks a lot about how to see. He says that the most important thing about learning how to see, it's almost like Buddhism, is that you learn to observe and notice without judging. You learn to coolly and calmly take a look at what's going on and see and notice what's reality, what's actually happening, without judging, without assuming, or without trying to make a connection that 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 is um, based off some assumption you had before. And most people are terrible at that. And he says that that's actually an act of will. That's an act of training yourself. That's very very difficult. And um, 
he says that's something we've lost immensely because in many senses, he's not even necessarily telling you what to think. He's actually just telling you what he's observed and his rootless ability to observe is what gives you a lot of these very interesting ideas that hit so hard and hit so, uh, so much at home because it's almost like he observed them and they are there. And uh, it's hard to deny that. Now, some of the conclusions is where you can start to deny it. So let's get yeah. into it. 100%. Let's go for it. The strong. So we're going to talk about the masters, the, the big boyos, the, the big boyos, the winners. He, he talks a lot about the idea of what it is to be strong, what it is to be happy, what it is to be a strong person and where that comes from. And he has that theory of you have the will, the power inside your soul. And then um, this burns out. And what this motivates you to do. So you can call it the Kundalini, some people call it. You can call it the libido is what Freud called it. And the Christians would have called it Satan, that urge towards sex, conquest, power, violence, um, expression, the passions. The, these things Nietzsche would call are like the, 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 the motivating drives that push you to act in the world. And Nietzsche would note that a master, a strong person, is someone who can express those in the form of action and survive. So say I have this desire to take over the world and get all the girls and, and like build this super empire that's all about me. And most like he's sort of saying that everybody has that in them. Everybody has that libido in them to, to conquer. And some people have more than others. But generally, everybody has that massive libido to take up more space, to grow, to expand. And if I express that and someone turns around to me and says, stop that or I'll beat the shit out of you. And then I say no. And then he beats the shit out of me. That's that's my will to power cut off and my action gets cut off and therefore I get shoved in my head. And so that's what a that's that's the experience of someone who's powerless. They don't have the power to manifest that will to power to, to bring it out in the world via action. And so they get shoved back into their head and they become somewhat castrated if you will they can't express their instincts their instincts deflect off the reality they're not their instincts are not strong enough they are not strong enough to push out into reality what they want and therefore it gets shoved back into them and that turns into the complex psychology of a, of a slave but nonetheless what's important to understand is that if you are strong and you succeed in expressing that passion and it it works you you say i want to take over the world and then of course the big bad guy shows up and he says no like uh, here i took a picture of the british empire not that in any way i admire them i'd never say that but but they um yes you do yes you do. you've read <laughs> enough nietzsche to come to understand yourself nietzsche was a was a psychologist as well as a philosopher essentially so reading him you should come to understand that you are a resentment filled little lout so fuck you essentially and um, and so these these uh these brits these norths i like the norths i'm going to just pretend all the brits were the norths the norths um the the brits said, oh, we want an empire to take over the world. And so they just expressed that desire and they achieved it. There was no obstacle that they could not take over. It just, they kept on like powering through everything, taking over everything. And so in that expression and the victory of that expression reaching its goal, you achieve happiness. And Nietzsche would say that acting is happiness. Like moving is happiness, expressing is happiness. This whole idea of this sort of inner peace happiness is a bit of a nonsense idea, which we'll a nonce, uh, we'll get into now in a bit. But it is this is a key thing to understand is that he sees the the master as the one who acts and releases that energy and experiences the joy of having that energy released freely and not getting challenged. This energy just bludgeoning everybody out of the way. 
And so for that reason, the master is very much focused on himself. He's very much his own mental point of origin. He's very much his own source. When that energy comes out of him and he, he releases it out of himself, he's not, he's not really too concerned with the outer world. He's actually coming to challenge the outer world in some sense. And the outer world in many ways caves to him. And that's a very interesting perspective because that's what a strong person experiences. But what's key to understand is most people do not experience that. Now, James, any thoughts on that before I go on into slavery? Yes, it's a key part of Nietzsche's philosophy. People do tend to forget, and it's because it's what Nietzsche. I think he, what I think he, what he does is he's almost writing his own version of the Bible, and I don't mean that in a religious sense. I mean he doesn't say genealogy of morals is my text par excellence. He said that's that for Zarathustra, but then Beyond Good and Evil is an articulation of that, and the gay science is like a prelude to that. So all of his texts form a big corpus, and you should read all of them. So going to genealogy, if you don't know the rest of his ideas, you might be led certain ways based on your own projections. But a huge thing he talks about is amor fati. And he says something like, what if a demon crept up, crept up to you in your loneliest loneliness and said that this life, as you live it and have lived it, you must live once more and innumerable times. I think that it might be a beat for beat quote. I try and remember this stuff because it's really cool. It's like poetry. <laughs> but what he's saying is, and he believed this, the eternal recurrence, you have to live your life again and again and again and again and again and again and again forever. So in order to make that worthwhile, you have to have a great health. And he based everything in, in health, physiological health, of course, but with physiological health also being a metaphor for your general sense of not well-being, but your vitality and how strong you are. Yep. And that's the measure of what you should be. So when you were saying happiness, Stefan, that's, I think that's what he's saying is like people have a will to happiness, a will to power, a will for vitality, a will for expression. And to cut that off is not a good thing. And the strong were able to, through their strength through their suppression through their oppression through whatever they were able to fully express themselves so if you were to say to a master and to a slave which one of you is happier to go and live your life now and innumerable times in eternal recurrence the master would be way more likely to say yes because oh they shit got resentment yeah. in them and that, that's a really good point because what the slave does and he notes this later and we'll get we'll, we'll hit on this again i might end up repeating myself a few times because it's just so interesting but what the slave does is he says the world is evil and so the only way he can get happiness is in some type of magical future such as an afterlife yep. or the yep. judgment day and all that and so that's a great point if you turn around to a slave and say you have to live your life exactly as it is over and over again the slave will be like well wait, wait a second no i'm going to get a reward in the future for my suffering now but yep. it's like no there is no future there's only this life and you're stuck in it and then the slave would start panicking because he'd be like, wait a second, you're taking from me the thing that kept me sane, the thing that stopped me from accepting that I, the, th the, thing, that, the thing that stopped me from, from facing the fact that I cannot express my, my, myself properly. And so that, that is a really important point is that the slave is unable to do that. He's unable to release the Wilst du Macht. He's unable yes. to. Yes. And, and just an addendum to that as well. You could say that Nietzsche himself, he lived a pretty his life was filled with suffering. He wasn't a particularly uh, successful man. He definitely lived in the shadow of, I want to be recognized. And that's why he kept talking about, I'll be born posthumously. No one really gave him any kind of credit. Even his good friend Wagner, he liked his first book, Birth of Tragedy, but then they kind of split as well. And no one really considered. After his first book came out, no one turned up at his classes anymore because the, no one liked it. So he was, he was sort of living in that way. But he makes it explicitly clear that even though I wasn't top dog, even though people didn't really like me, they didn't understand me, I wasn't the master in a political sense, I still had a great health. 
So it's almost it's almost speaking to masters and slaves as they currently are and say, to some sense, independent, though it's not necessarily independent. And the, the core, what you need to do to overcome and to live your life innumerable times in happiness and vitality is to get over your resentment. And that's the thing. Even if you are a sickly, diseased individual suffering with chronic pain, you need to develop a great health and a yes to life is how he said it, which is a very inspirational thing. Yes, that's absolutely true. And we will talk about that at the end, especially, um, is the, 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 the function, the danger that resentment places on the world and, and how, how that manifests in some sense. And mm. yes, it is almost like it's not like necessarily living a great life. And this is sort of where we get into Nietzsche's personal, the way you can use this to improve your personal life is he's like, man, figure out a way to express your creativity. Like if you can do that, mm. you can generally speaking, be happy. That that is happiness. In yeah, some that's sense. the only thing that justified life. Or one of the only things was uh, aesthetics and art and music in his life. Is that creative impulse? Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so yeah. So so what happens then? Which is interesting when you fail to do this. When you that that ideal slips away from you. When you get stuck in that nine to five job and you cannot you know go pursue your art. When you get 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 that cut off and you fail, um, your your instinct gets shoved inwards. You you get stuck. You cannot express yourself. And when it gets shoved inwards, something terrible happens that it starts to attack you. It starts to pull down into your soul, if you will. It starts to, in, in some sense, add depth to you. This is why you'd say the, the stronger, more likely to be na naive because they don't, they've never experienced that quite to the extent a true, a true slave has. And so while the alpha is assertive, the slave, all he can do is watch the, the master perform and he can't express himself and he's got all this energy going back inside himself. And so what he starts to do is he starts to he starts to judge this master. He starts to realize that this outer world is evil. He starts to say to this outer world, this outer world is holding me back. It's bullying my desire, my, my happiness into myself. And so he starts to think somewhat unconsciously that this outer world is evil and this figure this master that is the thing the obstacle that actually bullied me back into my 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 smaller position is the enemy in some sense and this is where his psychology starts to get a bit twisted he starts to judge the master as evil because he is fundamentally to the slave he is the bad guy who is cooking the slave or castrating the slave if you will but then he starts to do something interesting where he makes it more objective if you will he starts to create the morality out of it this is where we get the the slave the the, yeah, the slave morality from so mm -hmm. the weak are more cunning than the strong a race of such men of resentment will inevitably end up cleverer than any noble race and will respect cleverness to quite a different degree as well the strong full of creative power is good but often naive because because of this they forget easy they don't resent so deeply and rarely hatch such elaborate plans while the nobleman is confident and frank with himself, we got a Genevo of noble birth, underlines the nuance, the upright and probably naive as well. The man of resentment is neither upright nor naive, nor honest, nor straight with himself. So so we're, we're trying to set up the nuance of this, saying in some sense that the, the master is expressive, and that's great, and he's creative, and he's in somewhat honest. The word for French comes from the tribe of the Franks and the word Frank comes from being Frank. You know this in English where it's like, let me be frank with you. Um, you're mm -hmm. a fucking nonce, James. You're a fucking nonce. <laughs> you know that? Whereas the, the, but the problem there is, of course, is that they forget easy, they're naive and they, 
they don't resent so deeply as they're saying when you have that enemy you fight them more because you want a good sport you don't fight them because you want to hate them you want to destroy them in some sense whereas the slave has to lie to himself he has to be dishonest in terms of he has to lie about what he actually wants in order to win the game in some sense and so the slave starts to develop a very rich unconscious life whereas the master has a lot more of an outwardly rich life the slave has a rich inner life hmm. uh, any thoughts on that before we go on to that's yeah it reminded me it's funny considering your last name <laughs> of a fox where like if you look at it now i remember i used to live in a in a house back down south and we used to have foxes that used to have sex with each other frequently in our garden. Yeah. We used to absolutely hate them. We used to just look outside, and when you would bash on the glass, they'd stop making love to each other and sort of run away, and they'd, they'd hide, and they're like, those silly foxes, what are they doing? They're just silly. But then they would come and they would steal food during the day. Like, they were clever little bastards. They were sly, and, and they would use you for your own personal good. So I think the slave almost you could sum up as like a fox. You look at it and you think that it's sort of a, a harmless little thing do, doing its foxy things, but underneath it's very, very sly, and you should be very careful. And I know that from personal experience, Mr. <laughs> fox, that, uh, that uh, you can never trust a fox. You fucking nonce. You fucking nonce. <laughs> um, so yes, and so this is what Nietzsche tries to do here is he says that the the way we understand slaves is we see them as the poor on the, the poor people who are oppressed and we think of them as like nice guys you know we think of them as the nice people that don't deserve what's happening to them and we kind of think them as innocent and not dangerous we look at the either the strong and we're like oh god they're they're terrible people the way they're ruthless like that and we assume that the slaves are actually good because they're not you know dominant or, or cruel or crooked and all these type of things they don't have those those conquesting instincts in some sense but Nietzsche's trying to push back against this psychology and saying the slave wants power just like the master no matter what they say no matter what elaborate religion they create create in order to describe their psychology and justify their existence they want power just the same they want to release that energy and then um, what they are doing is simply twisting the world with their psychology they need to in some sense distort reality in order to serve themselves and it's very intelligent it's unbelievably intelligent what they do and so he Nietzsche is saying that the, the, as they judge they judge this negativity on the master's behavior and this as i said coagulates into a hate like a deep hate it's it's mm. difficult to fathom how intense this hate might become. And Nietzsche calls it calls this hate resentment. So he's talking about on a cultural level, but you imagine, you know, you imagine in a social circle, I keep saying this like in the last lectures, in the social circle, you have that alpha male and he's, you know, he says what he thinks and he doesn't filter his thoughts at all. Whereas you've got that person who's maybe not as charismatic or not as socially accepted or not doesn't have as high social status or something like that. And he wants to speak, but he can't. So all he does is he just watches this alpha male behave and he starts to think inside in his head. He develops an inner voice because he can't put that outer voice out there. And he says, this is what the master's doing. And he starts judging it. And of course, he want, has that desire for power. And so if he doesn't conquer his resentment, what will happen is that judgment will get soured by this desire for power. And what that will do is all the behaviors of the, the master will get soured with the hate of resentment and then turn those behaviors into evil. And that is a very scary thing because the master, on the other hand, his attitude towards the slave is not hateful. His attitude is sort of dismissive. The master easily can dominate the slave. So he sort of thinks of him as disgusting and lowly. It's like you're pathetic 
but that's not hate. That's just sort of like, get the fuck out of my way. I don't respect you. That's different than what the slave wants. Because when the slave hates the master, he hatches a plan where he's like, what I will do is I will take the master down. And then over the course of this a huge elaborate plan, he will eventually, you know, he'll go to all the girls in the group and he'll say, you know, this guy watches porn or something like that. He'll start souring the image of the master mm -hmm. and create this big, big, this this big big attempt to take him down and when he finally does that he will humiliate the master he'll destroy him he will he will he will he will express that will to power he couldn't he couldn't express and it will have been charged up over a huge amount of time and it will become monstrous in the way he does it so uh, any thoughts there jimmy boyle uh, no i think you did a very good job at explaining that for what it's worth uh, <laughs> yes yeah i mean a lot of what Nietzsche is doing is essentially psychology you could consider resentment in many ways to be shadow projection you're familiar with, Absolutely. Jung's, with Jung's corpus. It's like Absolutely. in, in Absolutely. that, in that, because I've been that. I've never been the alpha of a group before. I think some of I think it's like genetics. I've been I've been intellectually an alpha of a group before, but never the jock character. And I remember I used to find myself seeing the jocks. And you know, they would get into trouble in school and and I wouldn't, you know, I would actually I was such a nerd, I'd fix my uniform up perfectly and make my tie longer than it needed to be because I wanted to impress the teachers, which is, which is <laughs> sad. And and grow and growing up when I was young, say 10, 11, 12, I, I thought that was a virtue. But then, then as I grew a bit older and I started to develop away from my parents, I started to realize maybe this isn't the highest virtue. Maybe a higher <laughs> virtue should actually be taking part in the social hierarchy instead. Because I used to project against the jock type characters all the time and yeah. go well how come how come they get the girls and i don't you know how come how come people still like them how come the teachers still like them how come they're still here with me i don't understand this and i would start to get venomous and bitter and i'd gossip about them and make up excuses to why they were terrible but they were just naturally better at playing the social game than me and that was resentment and i guess what Nietzsche is saying is the individual is a reflective of the collective because we're just a collective of individuals. So we do the same thing politically. And any talk to a to someone who supports the this is a generalization to someone who supports the Labour Party, who's probably young, generally will not like upper classes. They will project against them all kinds of evil and oppression and all the nonsense they learn about colonialization and whatever that they learn in university. They will project that against them and hate them. And there's no way around that other than you are a resentful person and you cannot objectively defend that they're evil individuals. So it has to be resentment, which is exactly what Nietzsche is saying, which is horrifying. And what's in, yeah, and another very interesting word to bring into this that um, actually helps this a lot is the idea of envy. It's the mm. same, it's the same emotion. And it's just resentment is almost like the negative quality of, of envy. Yeah, because he, the, that person who you are envious of has something that you wish you had, but you are not allowed to to flourish with it. So you might say that in the past, when things were more oppressive, more rigid, hierarchical, you weren't able to go and express yourself yes. properly. So you might make a case that there's a legitimate reason to have slave morality. But these days, you can it's essentially a meritocracy, more or less. You can go and climb up any hierarchy. So it's almost the worst kind of faux slave morality where you see in individuals today. And they'll project that envy onto people and go, oh, they're just keeping me down. When it's like, nah, dude, you're just, you're just bad. You can't talk to women. You don't assert yourself hard enough. You don't get enough sleep. You're not everything you could be. And rather than face that head on, you just tend to project it against other people. It's it's classic 18 year old trying to sort their life out type envy. <laughs> yes, and this is what's so uh, profound about this is that Nietzsche describes this dynamic flawlessly and it is super practical to your life on a personal level. And then when you scale it up to a collective level, it becomes some of the most insightful stuff you'll ever hear about reality. And that's an indication that you're hitting on something that is extremely true. And it's fascinating to talk about resentment because as, as you will apply these 
principles to the real world, you see that we are like literally swamped in that emotion. And there's something that you must understand is that just because your resentment does not mean, just because you resent something does not mean you're not seeing reality. The, the problem is that the slave probably sees reality more than the master. Nietzsche is very clear about this. The master only gives a shit about his own reality. He actually bullies the world to suit him in some sense. And so in some sense, he has a distorted, the master has a distorted relationship with the world as well. And the slave, in some sense, it, it requires himself to see the world more clearly. But the problem for the slave is that he usually infects that with resentment and that's what distorts the world in the final place and we'll talk about the ubermatch a little bit later where i think nietzsche's implying that if the slave can overcome his resentment he can in many senses see the world as it is and then if he can take the final leap and say i'm going to impose a mass morality on this world that i'm seeing truly then you reach the truly you know and um, completed man the man who has been resentful overcome it and now can can do the right thing if you will in nietzsche's idea which is promote life creating values and it's a super interesting idea because it is about conquering the resentment and the the mark of a slave is not necessarily being a slave but the inability to conquer that resentment the the the, the challenge of the slave is to resent is to hate is to feel the problem of not being able to express your your energy and the mark of um a failure is likely your inability to not to become your inability to overcome the resentment that comes with that and this is where we we can go into something very interesting where nietzsche talks about how this manifests as the goal of the slave the slave often says he wants happiness but then when you analyze the happiness of the slave it becomes very interesting because it, it revolves around the idea of peace. So now I have said before that um, the master expresses his emotion. He releases his psychology, he releases his will to power, and he finds happiness and not in overcoming the resistance to that. He finds happiness in his ability to dominate the world. The slave cannot do that. And so what the slave starts to model as happiness is the idea of ending that internal pain that he's feeling because he shoots out that 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 beam of will of power and it bounces off reality and goes back into himself and that hurts because it, it criticizes him it makes him hate hate is a horrible emotion to feel envy is a horrible emotion to feel it makes you feel it damages you that energy that was supposed to go out and damage the world is now going into you and damaging you and so the slave desires deeply the ability to to cut that off to, to stop that he's like i need to end this desire for action that's fundamentally what he's asking, but he's not even conscious that he's asking that, but he's like, I need to get rid of that will to power. That will to power is hurting me. And so the dream, the desire he starts to get is a happiness, which is related around the idea of peace. Now the master's happiness is the idea of action, victory, conquest, courage, sometimes even death. That's what you see often with the, the master is like, uh, you know, the old master, what were the, the, the Spartans, you know, they would consider a good death in action in nobility as the ultimate way to die is the ultimate um, act of of master morality whereas the slave is looking for peace he's looking for sabbath rest day he's looking for a narcotic he's looking for nirvana nirvana means the end of suffering and so this is why slave moralities are so focused on stopping the will to life which is the cause of suffering and schopenhauer is a good example of this buddhism is a good example of this christianity as well and that is a unbelievably interesting take. Mm. And so what we're getting here is uh, the famous master-slave morality, the assertive good 
which is fighting for victory, creativity, and beauty in a world of weakness and vulgarity, which is the obstacle and the pride and happiness of this energy of this master is overcoming that weakness and vulgarity and achieving that beauty. But the reactive hate of the vulgar, of the conquered, of the weak, of the powerless, of the slave, they are fighting against these evil masters, these people, these doers, these actors. Um, and they do this by being pious and be, being cunning like the fox, becoming men of knowledge and uh, of, of soul. So they, they, they feel that energy go inside of them and they, they have to somehow figure out a way to, 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 to solve their suffering. And this results in them deciding that they need to kill the master energy. So any thoughts on that, James, before we go on? I do. I'm enjoying this. So this becomes super interesting because these two interpretations of power, the master and the slave begin to compete in the real world, just like the in the social circle you've got that like chad alpha and he's um he's just operating on a sort of might makes right like people like me because i'm the best and this this kind of weirdo in the corner who can't get any attention who keeps saying sort of passive aggressive things to me like he's he's just he's just not he doesn't deserve my respect i don't really hate him but he kind of pisses me off a bit a little bit and it's weird that he won't like fight me straight up i don't really like that whereas the slave understands that knowledge is important he understands that okay i cannot fight them the master properly i need to come up with a strategy i need to understand that knowledge matters more than strength i need to understand that truth matters more than strength and i need to be smart i need to be i need to work around the i need to play the chessboard a lot better i need to outthink this guy and so he starts to introvert and starts to see knowledge as the ultimate form of power whereas the master sees having vitality as the ultimate form of power the slave sees knowledge as the ultimate form of power and so this is where we get the idea of and you get the you know this archetype you've got the really smart intelligent nerd or priest or religious man who is very feeble in the body and he's always like reactive against the brave strong but naive master and this is where nietzsche says it's fascinating because the, the masters are the people who you want the masters are the people who make life interesting. The masters are the people who create stuff. But the slaves are the people who fundamentally win. And the slaves are the people who, in some sense, make the historical story interesting. And we'll get to that now at the very end. And, and he, he codifies this with the idea that the weak prevail over the strong again and again because they are the great majority, first of all, but also because they are more cunning. They are more intelligent. Yeah, let's, uh, I want to touch on piousness for a second, if you don't mind. Because yeah, yes. I've had experience with quite a few priests being raised a Catholic boyo. And the general assumption being a Catholic boyo is priests equals good, or at least priests equals better than you. And then, you know, that's like a just something that you take for granted. That is true moving forward in the world. But then you've got to ask yourself the question, why are they being pious? Why does that make them good? You know, you can see like Dante's hierarchy of hell and heaven. It's like, so, okay, they've aligned themselves perfectly along that axis, have they? Along Christian morality. I don't buy that because in order to become a priest, all you technically need to do is to learn enough theology and to then say, make an oath, which you don't necessarily have to keep, that you are going to remain chaste and you are going to dedicate yourself to the church. So there are there are two motivations. And I imagine Nietzsche would also take a similar frame to this, where are the priestly, more pious slave type people, are they doing it as a form of self-overcoming? For example, being chaste because they want to actually become chaste warriors, they want to preserve their energy. Or are they doing it so that they look good? Is it their way of blending in and avoiding the normal master-slave hierarchy by bypassing it? And 
you know, you can ask yourself that question. How many holy men would fall into the first frame or into the second frame? And that's considering that might tease you more into the way Nietzsche thinks about things, where the way things appear on the surface is not necessarily how things appear deep down inside. You've got to pass apart the motivations. And in doing so, everything starts to crumble around you, sadly. Like, are they doing, or is the priest giving up on the, the temptations of life because he knows that he, he's going to be happy that way? Or is he doing it because he knows that if he does that, he will get in a position of power, which will give him authority and status and whatnot? And that's a very good question. I'm sure there are priests who do actually go in there with somewhat of a truly pious attitude. And we'll talk about that with Jesus later. Like, Jesus is a good example of someone who who most likely was high, someone who actually mastered their resentment and turned into a very interesting person in the sense that they were a slave who did not hate. That's a profound idea. And they were he was not seeking status. It was true. His psychology was true in some sense. Whereas you could say that most priests, like no one, fuck up, no, no one reaches the level of Jesus really. So most people do have this desire in some sense for status, no matter how much they try to deny it. And so they become the priest, they become the pious man, they become the spiritual person because they're looking perhaps unconsciously for a position of, of, of um, authority, position of status. And, and this is what Nietzsche says later on is that this is evidence in how politically ruthless priests become because when you get these high-level bishops, their, their vengeance becomes unprecedented. Like the masters are, can, can, you know, do terrible things like rape your town and burn your city down and all that. But the, the priest will, priest will get motivated towards things like genocide and crazy stuff like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you consider the, um, the Catholic church versus more Protestant churches, Catholic priests will say 500 years ago or so, you had to really be strict and you had to do things properly. Like the monks, for example, they would pray all day, every day. They were disciplined men. And a lot of the monks as well were also warriors, at least a thousand years ago, they'd be pious. And then they would go off and kill all the Muslims in the foreign lands. You know, it, it was, there was a, there was a more warrior virtue like aspect to them. If you consider today that the Catholic church has a real big issue with getting young priests in, I know in my parish back down South of England, they have to have like a priest for multiple parishes. And it's like, that's a really big problem. How are we going to get more priests in lads? This is a problem. Well, maybe do what the Protestants do and say, well, you don't have to be chaste anymore. Imagine if they did that, because being chaste is actually a big sacrifice you'd have to make in order, if you do it properly. So you could consider that more of a virtue, a more difficult thing to do. Whereas the Protestant churches say, no, you can do anything you want. You could be a normal man and you get the moral authority of everybody else and you get funding and, and looked after by the church for life. You'll never be you'll never be left alone, we'll say. So there's, there's kind of an interesting there between motivations you maybe a catholic priest may be more virtuous than a protestant priest not not saying that it is but one path easier in a certain dynamic so that throws away the well i'm doing this for moral virtue it's what god wants me to do it's like well maybe but also probably not yeah that's yeah, very interesting yes and so uh, this is sort of a restatement of what we said earlier a brush over fast the strong are frank and um, but the weak are prudent and prudent is um, a form of that intelligence, of that cunningness. They prudent is that patience, that ability to to take the punch and not react. Their ability to to cease to control their passions. And you can see now where we're starting to beginning to get that that morality that we know so well today, where it's like um, you know, you can imagine the slave getting whipped, and the slave has to learn to take it has to learn to take it and bury that hate deep inside of him and, and say, I will, I will get my revenge later. 
But for now, I'm just going to take it. I'm not even going to give you the satisfying uh, satisfaction of suffering that much. I'm going to learn to suffer well. And you start to get a very, very deep and interesting person there. Someone who who, who develops the, the, I guess you could say, the proto-ideals of Christ. Someone who can suffer nobly. And someone who can suffer nobly and, uh, not, and eventually not even hate their master. But nonetheless, the slave is pushed towards that direction of prudently resenting and playing the long game. And this is where Nietzsche says the formation, the psychological formation of God becomes comes from, or their God. Their God is the future, the, the rewarder in the future, the God who's watching you suffer and actually gives a shit about why you suffer. Now, that's interesting because Nietzsche says that the God of the masters doesn't give a fuck if you suffer or not. He wants to see your results. He's a results-orientated God. He rewards you for victory. He rewards you for achievement. He rewards you for doing great actions. He rewards you with happiness and these type of things. And he actually punishes you. Most of these older gods are more evil. They're, they're, they have a dark side. Even the Old Testament God had a dark side where he would punish you for failing. And, and that is reflective of the master's reality. It's like I, I go out there and there's a big chance that I'll die, but there's also a, a great reward if I succeed and I will get the favor of the gods. You must get the favor of the gods. And Odin and all that like loved bravery. They love they love they they reward the warrior that type of idea whereas this god he rewards you for suffering well he rewards you for being weak and he's always offering you that reward in the future he's saying okay keep being weak keep suffering well and prove to me that you that you can tame that beast inside of you so you see how this god the way it speaks to the to the slave is exactly what he needs to do it says prove to me that you can withhold that desire to fight back that desire to punch back to scream out to, to curse the master to react incorrectly imprudently in, in yeah imprudently impatiently prove to me that you can do that and i re will reward you in the future and that's the 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 abstracting of a very practical idea don't react plan and there will be a future judgment where all the quote-unquote evil people will get smashed and killed and you will be the chosen one glorious to watch it and that is the experience of a slave often he gets punished and then he goes back to his family and his tribe and says we got to figure out a way to take down these dudes and they spend years generations maybe even centuries fighting against these masters and eventually they take over and what do they do when they take over they punish them like that you could never believe they punish them so ruthlessly so completely that it is it's horror it's some of the most horrible things in history yeah. So that this was one is... of um, that's one of Nietzsche's knockout blows to Christianity, I think, or at least the knockout, or perhaps uh, shining a magnifying glass on the structures which holds it up, which is really horrible. It's essentially, he says, Christianity is at least in its current form is a denial of life, and you know, and you can see that actually if you go back to. Um, and this is something people can't really believe that this was like seventy years ago or so now, like when rock and roll first came onto the scene. Uh, people weren't allowed to engage in rock and roll. It was the music of the devil, right? It was, it was Dionysian, yeah. essentially, which Nietzsche really liked. It was just a, an, an enrapturement of your senses and your eros, and you were dancing around. You couldn't do that. No, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. Bad. If you suppress it, you get reward in afterlife. That's what Nietzsche is saying. He's like, a lot of what you're doing, if not all of what you're doing, is a suppression of your will to life, that Dionysian aspect to you, and you think that it will reward you because it's a reflection, a crystallized, abstracted reflection of what you've always had to do in the past. And yes. that is terrifying to me. Yes. That is, that's, you know, it's not a knockout blow to, say, Christ. It's a knockout blow to what Christianity is. And that's just, yeah. that's terrifying. Yeah. And I, will, I do notice, actually, that um, I, I was reading a little bit of the Antichrist there last night. 
and I noticed that he 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 has some criticism. He does pull on Jesus a bit, but he specifically goes after Saint Paul uh, in Corinthians, and he, he actually shows a passage. I might even run over and get it um, the next time you're talking. And he shows a passage where Saint Paul literally, like Saint Paul, starts to say the mighty shall be punished and all that, and it's it's nuts. It's nuts how accurate it is because it does seem like Saint Paul in some sense, is just expressing a slave morality. And St. Paul was the main church father, if you know. And he was uh, initially punishing the, the Christians and all that. So so it's a very interesting uh, frame to take, is that whatever the, whatever about the story, most certainly the religion started to take a weird turn. And it became ex incredibly loaded with a lot of these psychological tri tripwires, if you will. And so as we're saying, faith, obedience to the strict rules, suffering until the judgment, all psychological realities that the slave needs to do that gets turned into a religion, gets turned into a morality and gets asserted as the truth. Yeah. Whereas the strong, as I was saying before, is a different attitude. He just sees his enemy as a measure and a man is as great as his problems. And so he's looking for a good competition, honorable sport. The weak see their enemy as evil and the depth of their vengeance and cruelty is difficult to fathom for the naive. And um, I don't know if you researched into Bolshevism Bolshevism was the great communist revolution where they said those those kulaks who have all the wealth, the exploiters, the upper class, they are your enemies. So what you need to do is you need to band together with us and we need to take them down and establish the utopia in the future. So you will suffer now, but in the future, we will take back the power and we will create the utopia, the kingdom of God. And if you are prudent and you do, you do this with us, we will be able to judge them. We'll be able to pull those kulaks down and punish them as they deserve to be punished. And so the Bolsheviks swarmed over Russia during a war they took over. And what they did is they went into the kulaks, these farmers, and they would go in and they would rape their daughters and they would rape the, the wives. They would rape the, the, the grandmothers, everything. They would send the men off to the gulags up in Siberia. And they murdered millions. The most deaths in history happened under communism. It is there is just nothing quite like what happened in Eurasia during these periods of history. And that was all coming from us. It was founded on a psychology of resentment. Marxism was fundamentally resentment against the upper class. And so that is um, fascinating in that we don't get just how monstrous these people can be. Like Stalin had uh, death quotas where he was giving out to his generals permission to kill this many people in order to bring in the the new world and all this. So it, it really, we really don't, we see these innocent slaves as naive, as as um we, we treat them naively. We treat them as like not that bad, but really when they get power and they have the opportunity to punish, it's it's unbelievable the, the depth of hate that they express and the damage they do and how much they will destroy a master just to experience the power of or just to release that 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 will the power that has been bullied inside of them for so long it becomes it turns into something horrible something i guess the be the closest you could call it is evil beyond belief james here's a quote would you like to read this i would love to read this i love reading a nice quote the noble one conceives of the basic idea good by himself in advance and spontaneously, and only then creates a notion of bad. This bad of noble origin and that evil from the cauldron of unassuaged hatred, the first is an afterthought. 
and a side, a complementary color, whilst the other is the original, the beginning, the actual deed in the conception of slave morality. How different are the two words bad and evil, although both seem to be the opposite for the same concept, good. But it is not the same concept, good. On the contrary, one should ask who is actually evil in the sense of the morality of resentment. The stern reply is precisely the good person of the other morality, the noble, powerful, dominating one, but retouched, reinterpreted, and reviewed through the poisonous eye of Resentimon. Keep, keep going, brother. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here there is one point we would be the last to deny. Anyone who came to know these good men as enemies came to know nothing but evil enemies. And the same people who are so strongly held in check by custom, respect, habit, gratitude, and even more through spying on one another and through peer group jealousy, who, on the other hand, behave towards one another by showing such resourcefulness in consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride, and friendship. They are not much better than uncaged beasts of prey in the world outside where the strange, the foreign begin. There they enjoy freedom from every social constraint. In the wilderness, they compensate for the tension which is caused by being closed in and fenced in by the peace of the community for so long. They return to the innocent conscience of a wild beast as exultant monsters who perhaps go away having committed a hideous succession of murder, arson, rape, and torture in a mood of bravado and spiritual equilibrium as though they had simply played a student's prank convinced that poets will now have something to sing about and celebrate for quite some time. So on one hand, I did describe the, the monstrosity of what the, the slaves can achieve, but this was an example. So that first quote was an example of, of how, how the psychology of that works. The, the idea of the slave starts to see evil as a representative of everything that is good for the master. So they become dichotomized. They become in opposition. They become inversions of each other. And the slave morality is specifically a reaction to the master morality. And then this is the discussion of like steel manning, why the slave sees it this way is because the master is has this very interesting dynamic where he will have strict obedience and in-group loyalty. So you would have those Norsemen, those, uh, those Vikings, th those Germanics, and they would live in their forests and in their little tribes, and they would be highly moral in a weird way. They'd have all these supremely high, supremely um, familiar mor moralities. Like they were very sexually, sexually uh, tamed. Like they, they would often go chast until later in life and whatnot. They'd have very high self-control. They're very loyal. They were very um, altruistic among their people. But then what would happen is once they leave the enclosure, they go out in a raid, for example, as the Vikings would do. They'd go out to the foreigner. And the foreigner was considered the vulgar people, the other people, the, the bad people, the weak people, the, the, the ugly people, the, the people you don't like. And they would go out there and this is where they express their will to power. And so the experience for a lot of these slaves as much as the Bolsheviks were just monstrous, was equally monstrous or similarly monstrous for um, for the the vulgar people, the low people, the the slaves, the powerless in the presence of these 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 ruthless tribes, these master tribes, these tribes more in touch with their vital instincts, as we we're saying. And so, they, like the the attitude they go is that because their morality is not slave morality, it's not universalized. They're very very good to their people but when they go out they almost have this like spiritual release they have they have no sense of r right or wrong as we'd understand it they would go and they would murder arson rape they would destroy 
a town and they would do this with like happiness with fun it would be fun you know it would be like lighthearted in a weird way mm. as he was saying a student's prank and and that experience is so difficult for us to understand and this is where slave morality was forged in like when you see a viking come to you i come into your monastery for example and like rape all the nuns and then murder them afterwards and then kill all and burn all the the the, the priestly books and all this and just just go literally insane like odin they're possessed by odin they're just murder death uh, and they're like nearly laughing or something it's like they're enjoying it like how would you see that as, as anything other than satan like in order to steal man, the vulgar, the, the the powerless. Like what what would you what would you think if that happened? If they just roamed in and they were just destroying everything you know with this joy, and you could feel the joy off it. They were loving this. You'd be like these these motherfuckers are monsters. What else could they be? And so um, that is something. The, the, the scary thing is as well that there is a situation. You know, Jung called this the shadow, but there's a situation, many situations probably in which you would do the exact same thing. It's like. <laughs> run through them in my head and I could come to scenarios and I hate to say it, but I can come to scenarios where I could also enjoy doing the exact same thing. If somebody that... came in and did horrific things to my family, for for example, while I was yeah, at, yeah. and then I knew exactly where they were and I knew that they were in pain, like they tripped or something on the way there. I can walk through in my head precisely what I could do, precisely what I'd be driven to do and precisely what I would enjoy. So Nisha is saying, it's like to say that that is bad is a silly thing. That's like a human that's like a human, um, not necessarily you should go and do it, therefore, because Nietzsche is so niche, but he's saying it's not a bad thing necessarily. It is a natural instinct. Now, the question comes up of wise and unwise and projections onto that. Should we do that? Is it a virtue? Is it a vice? But it's not bad by nature. It's not innately evil. You know, to, to, yeah, yeah. it's just a natural thing which you will do, that you hate it happening to you. So therefore you'll pro you'll project evil onto it. He uses a metaphor as well. You might have prepared this, Stefan, where he talks about a lamb and a bird of prey. And he says that the, the lamb hates the bird of prey. That's the only way to describe it. It hates it and it considers the bird of prey to be evil and therefore anything like a bird of prey to be evil. Lamb is good, bird of prey bad. From a bird of prey's point of view, it's like, I love you, little lamb. I'm going to have great fun with you. You're delicious to me. I'm going to come take you up, take you back to my nest and I'm going to eat you and I'm going to enjoy you. I have no hatred towards you. So it's a projection. It's a it's a subjective dynamic and it's, it's a massive head fuck yeah yeah like and you know in order to bring this home for all you chad norths out there like if you suddenly walked into to um greg's and it was full of nonsense like it would happen like you know that there, there would be and they were all you know eating your munchie boxes and they were looking at you being like you fucking no fuck and it's just like all these nonsense you would you would you would rip off that that north fc shirt you would burst out that chad body and those rolls and you would just destroy them all so that instinct would be natural it's going to happen to you because you don't actually get munchy boxes in Greg's, is my understanding. Greg's is like breakfast and lunch, whereas mun munchy boxes when you've had a few too many fucking pints, mate, in it. You just grab a little bit from munchies, you know what I mean? A little chicken burger on the way home, cheeky little chicken. Oh, right, right. So, being like Akbar's or something like that when you're coming home, we're getting a, a lush kebab, mate. <laughs> yeah, and the word lush, Jesus Christ. They, yeah, that's, that's more of a girl, girl phrase. Like, that's, so, that's so lush, mate. Oh, it's disgusting. I hate it um and so there's this passage which is fascinating because then you this is where you really get to see what nietzsche thinks he he weeps and i don't have the quote but we can pull the quote up if you want but he says um for for this reason as we described up here this is why the slave morality develops and this is why the europeans have this mistrust icy mistrust he calls it for the teutons the teutonic race 
you know, the during World War One and World War Two, like the propaganda was very heavily on on using the terms Hun and framing like the Germans as these these monstrous aggressors. You know, they are tapping into that very old ancient memory of the Viking raiders, the the evil enemies, and all this stuff. And so there is this this hate towards these vital men who were monsters, who literally were monsters. They were monsters, and then. Um, now, what's interesting now is that these two Teutonic races, like the Germans, as Nietzsche often criticized his own people, he said the Germans were pathetic. And this is why I think he was so anti-Christian, is because he 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 doesn't respect how the, the the naive master Teutonic races that the Germans should be have fell under the slave system and we're in the process of being tamed. And what being tamed means is that you get taught this morality of resentment. And what it does is it tells you that that vital instinct that wants you to do all these horrible things and um, and create stuff, be creative, is is castrated in some sense, and it makes you it makes you uh, soft, it makes you easy to mold, it it tames you, it makes you a domestic animal. You've ever seen those memes where the wolf is out there, this big savage wolf, and he he he's like it's snowy, and he's like you know, I'm very very hungry. I might just go over and, and get a little bit of food off this. Uh, some leftovers off this little tribe of people like what, what's the worst that could happen and then it's like five thousand years later you've got this like little dog dressed up in like a and this tiny little dog dressed up in a in a little bow tie or something like that and then um, it's that idea of the 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 tool of civilization is to tame the beast within and this is how um we start to see the necessity of slave morality and actually the value of slave morality in some sense and this i'll get into what i think nietzsche is saying more later but this idea that you have a, a it's very hard to run a giant civilization when you have a load of monstrous teutons like this who live in small tribes and go out raiding people but can't think about higher orders like it's very hard to integrate a Teuton, a monster like this, a, a, a Germanic uh, blonde beast, as Nietzsche calls them, into something like the Roman Empire, because these people are so loyal to their their in-group and so monstrous towards their out-group. What you need to do with a larger empire is you need to say, tell, kind of bring a universal notion of morality. You need to transcend their understanding of of their old understanding of morality. And you actually see this going on today as we're trying to globalize the world. The the huge emphasis is that people need to stop seeing their own people, their own nations as the only people who are moral. They're, we're trying to deconstruct ethnocentrism and start to broaden the scope of, of morality. We're trying to do it again in some sense. But Nietzsche warns this is a terrible thing because in order to do that, you need to take these masters, these beasts, these blonde beasts, which are all of our potential for creating something great, and you need to destroy them. You need to turn them into, you need to castrate them, essentially. That's fundamentally what you're doing. You're castrating them. And so Nietzsche asks the damning question, what do we lose? What is the purpose of civilization if all it's going to do is create a higher order that is destroying people, full of, full of domesticated dogs instead of proud wolves? Isn't the goal, isn't the purpose, isn't the, the thing that we look back on on history, the greatness of what we achieved? When we look back on history, we don't look and say, oh, that was, we, we were really moral for those extended periods. We look back and we look at the, 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 the proud, arrogant statues of the Greeks. We look back at the immense wonders of the Roman demons that the Romans were. We look at, um, we look at everything that was achieved by the Teutonic races as well, the Holy Roman Empire and all that, the, 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 great, uh, the great music and the great, the great high German culture that was there. We look at the, the monstrous de demonic 
ruthless British Empire. We look at those things and we're like, that was the purpose, that great beauty. And we are losing that when we're taming ourselves, when we are becoming we are becoming more civilized, even though it's somewhat necessary. So is it not better to be living in fear of these monsters that would, you know, murder people and they're disgusting and horrible? Isn't it better to live in fear of these people? Even uh, but have this image of a great man coming in and and, and being a, an oppressor than being surrounded by ugly half men by orcs. And that's a huge question Nietzsche is saying, like, we are so afraid that we're in some sense willing to sacrifice the highest ideals, which is creative beauty. And that is unbelievably dangerous. He's saying that is probably the most dangerous side of slave morality and why it needs to be dealt with properly. Because if you if you destroy beauty, in some sense, you do actually destroy fundamentally, in a realistic sense, the most important thing about life, the achievement of beauty, the achievement of high culture. And that is a, an amazing idea because Nietzsche weeps. He's like, the way I see it going is we're going to move more towards orcs and half men. And we're going to turn everybody into this like sort of golem. And there'll be no more great men left. And there'll be no more great art left. And there'll be no more great civilization left. And we're going to fall deeper and deeper down into this because evolution progress does not imply increase in goodness. It in some sense may imply something far, far more sinister and dysgenic. And Nietzsche calls this the last man in those books, Arathustra. Uh, Jimothy. Mm, I've, I've lost to say, but I will save it for a little later. Carry on. Okay. Carry on. Okay. I'm enjoying your little story. Okay, right. Oh, yeah. And this is the quote. Would you like to read the quote or should we bounce on it? Uh, that will probably take five minutes to read. So for us to bounce. Um, so, yeah, I'll give you a, 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 a brief general notice. Like, I cannot suppress a, sal a sigh and one last hope. And so this is so key to understanding Nietzsche. This is what he's saying. One last hope. He, he sighs. He's like, man, if shit keeps going this way, we're fucked. Like, but from time to time, grant me, assuming that there are divine uh, benefactors beyond good and evil, like glimpse, grant me just one glimpse of something perfect, completely finished, happy, powerful, triumphant, that still leaves something to fear. A glimpse of man who justifies man himself, a stroke of luck, an instance of man who makes up for and redeems man and enables us to retain our faith in mankind. Today we see nothing that wants to expand. We suspect that all things will just continue to decline, getting thinner, better-natured, cleverer, more comfortable, more mediocre, more indifferent, more Chinese, more Christian. <laughs> <laughs> just drop Chinese in there. I love that. No doubt about it. Man is getting better all the time. But right here is where the destiny of Europe lies. In losing our fear of man, we also have lost our love for him, our respect for him our hope in him, and even our will to be man. The sight of man now makes us tired. What is nihilism today if not that? We are tired of man. And look, if you look around the world you live in right now, this this man, this man hit that so unbelievably well. What is the great movement now? It's about taking men off their pedestal about moving men out of the out of the 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 civilizational sphere and and then um, you know diversity quotas equality quotas gender quotas all that's what's all going on now it's about pulling men down because men are evil men are wrong and he's he's hitting on that like with such accuracy from nearly 120 years ago unbelievable it's unsightly how poignant that that vision was it's amazing and this was his fear What's happening is his fear. He's like, man, you have no idea what we're going to lose. It's monstrous. 
Well, you can ask yourself why are men, in particular men, but also women, but why do men have that capacity for monstrosity? And if you take evolution seriously, then you have to say that women liked it. Everything. It comes down to, <laughs> like, well, women bred with the monstrous men. And that's, and no, don't go down a narrative of, of well, all the monstrous men just rape the women, because that's not the case. But like, we know that for a fact in multiple different measures, but that's that's besides the point, I guess. Women liked that. We have to have that claw-like capacity within us. So if you actually, if you run this out, we can say that nihilism, as he said, I think so poignantly was we're tired of man. If we take men off their pedestal in terms of taming man, then you're going against evolutionary psychology history, in which case women don't find the men attractive, which means birth rates are going to decline. They won't actually breed and produce fertile families. They won't have that going forward, which means you could say that the action of these characters who wish to take men off of their pedestals, colloquially speaking, is an acted out version of nihilism because it's a will to death, a will to death for the species. There is yeah. no greatness, and therefore because there is no greatness, the way, the only way that can act out is a will for complete and utter annihilation and death. And you see that in so many movements now. It's like, don't have children. There are so many. I used to follow quite a few completely secular, non-philosophical say podcasts and YouTube shows a few years ago. And all the main guys in them, very high proportion, would always say, I'm not having kids because the planet's overpopulated. You know, yeah. who is it for me to go and pass on my genes? And, and they're not actually finding, they're not getting married. They're not having children. None of that. And it's like, well, what does that mean? That means annihilation. That means nothing. And do you know what's interesting about that is the idea behind that is nature is our last vista of beauty because we believe that humans are ugly and, and horrible and we believe that humanity is nothing but a, a horrible beastly monster that produces nothing beautiful and so the only justified morality there is to say we must protect nature at all costs because she is more beautiful than we are and so what we must do is sacrifice ourselves sacrifice mankind and that's actually a misunderstanding of what what truly uh, humanity in alignment with nature is unbelievably beautiful. Greece, Rome, and um, Christian Europe at its peak, like these things, like the Renaissance, for example. This is this is life. This is humanity living in accordance with nature, and that is beautiful. But we lost touch with that, as Nietzsche says. So, so now we're willing to sacrifice every, everything that we are in order to go back to nature in some sense, and that is a manifestation of a desire to, I think psychologically bring humanity back to a perspective of alignment with nature but we can't do that so what that manifests as is a desire to destroy humanity and go back to nature and that's so like we talk about this in the boyo book a lot i talk about it especially at the start that dynamic is i think the current drama of our time and it's there's something unconscious to it that we don't we're not aware of and it's causing us to act in a way that is unbelievably dark and sinister and nietzsche called it like and it's just i've been reading this book closely man he calls way too much it's 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 uncomfortable how much he calls like he like i've read in young young has got a pretty high batting count nietzsche is just disgusting it's out of the park it's like every single ball you throw at him he hits it out of the park and you're like that is crazy man this this is it has such a punch to it and now we're going to discuss how these slave morality orders are created well i'm, I'm going to break the fourth wall for a second i think we've been i haven't kept track of time but i think we've been going for at least 90 minutes at this point so depending on how much more you've got to do including q a stuff you might want to uh, either save this for next time or speed through it uh let's 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 fly through it fuck it let's fly through it like uh, i think we've got the basics covered because that's really important stuff what we just covered there the priestly class and uh, the pictures are great dude i really just want to show the pictures more than anything that's a very pretty picture i enjoy that so the problem is, is when you get people like this in the peak of the pyramid, 
what happens when you get um when you get a slave someone with a slave morality up where the masters were you get you have the top class the ruling class and what happens when those people are priests what happens when those people get in there and they start deciding stuff like knowledge is power and the, the will to life is wrong they decide we need to castrate stuff so as we're saying they start creating those higher orders and what they do is they start taking huge vistas of people because they're smarter than the the masters who kind of stay stuck in their nations or their tribes and you know f like being strong and beautiful and, and, and amazing but they they don't they don't think bigger and the priests think bigger and end up getting bigger armies even though it's armies of orcs but they end up taking over by, sh by sheer force of numbers and then they integrate these you know these Teutons into their their catholic empire if you will or their christian empire and then they begin to castrate the Teutons in some sense and so the the, the warriors lose the the might makes right and so what happens when these spiritual men get into power the priestly class the brahmins the catholics the pharisees these, these are all examples of societies that were ruled by priestly classes, by priests. These were the highest people. Like the Catholic Empire is super interesting because at the very top of it was a priest, not a king. And, and for Nietzsche goes and does the same things he did in the last one. He looks at words. He looks at words a lot in this. And he has some fascinating stuff like how the priests frame themselves as um, this sort of similar to God. So the Catholics get the idea of father, even though in the Bible it says, no man, you shall call no man father, but your father in heaven. Yet in Catholicism, you call the priest father. Super interesting. And um, then their goodness as well, their position is dichotomized against cleanliness and uncleanliness. So the unwashed masses were lower. They were diseased. These were the people who were who represented above life. Whereas the priest, in order to be spiritual, in order to be upper class, he had to actually keep himself clean. And Nietzsche's like, well, this kind of originated from the idea of the, these, these, these have to, you know, like very basic things. Like you can't, you can't go sleeping with lower class women. You can't go, you can't go being dirty. You can't go eat dirty foods. You need to be the thinker for, for this, this culture. So you need to, in some sense, um, have certain strict diets. You need to have standards in some sense and make yourself clean. And it's a very physical-based thing, and that's eventually evolved into the idea of the priest being a pure man, a spiritually pure man. And a lot of this stuff is this cleanliness, this desire for cleanliness, related a lot to how they began to castrate their will to power, as we talked about earlier, and that they become um, they become they become purified in the spirit. Then, so you see how it begins as a physiological thing, and then moves up into a more abstract and uh, spiritual idea. And um, this. Well, there's a few questions I wanted to ask about this, like the origin of religious diets, like the Jews, I think most Abrahamic religions, oh yeah, the Jews and the Muslims say you shouldn't eat pork. Yep. And vegans, for example, say you shouldn't eat meat. And over in the Brahmins, over in uh, India, you'll have yogis who say don't eat meat as well or treat cows as sacred because they give you milk and all that. And so this is super interesting because that, that seems like very practical stuff. Like uh, pigs have some of the worst parasites you can get. You can get this brain fluke, I believe, off a raw pig. So it actually makes a lot of sense to eat um, the unclean, to not eat the unclean animal of pigs because it can kill you. And so how much did the, these religious cleanliness customs simply be physiological realities that a tribe needs that get, that get codified into, into law? I'm, I'm going to quote the, the highest intellectual of our times, par excellence, Ben Shapiro, <laughs> in this. Uh, he, uh, I, I believe he was asked specifically, because I don't know that much about orthodox.
Alchemist Judaism, I really don't. Um, he was asked, do you believe in the biological mechanism behind uh, the uh, religious diets? I think it was Joe Rogan who posited to him, do you not eat pork because of the parasites? And he goes, no. I don't like the biological mechanism. I think it just came about because God wanted it to happen. So any parallel, and he, he's clearly a very orthodox individual. So I presume they don't acknowledge a biological mechanism. Yeah. So. Yeah. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche is a bit of a, he just pokes on all these things. He's saying, no, 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 your whole religion is, is based on f uh, physiological things. And he's, he's adamant. He says, do not ever assume more complicated causes than it's Occam's razor. And whatever's this, or maybe that's the wrong one. It's whatever's the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. That's Occam's razor, yeah. And so he's he's just running with that. He's being like, is there a god, or is it an example of resentful people abstracting their psychology onto a story in order to preserve their identity? Is there such thing as religious diets, or was it just that you know pigs had parasites and priests were the smartest people, and so they kept away from that shit? Like you know, it's it's quite it's quite basic and obvious when you think about it. And then this cleanliness, this obsession with this type of stuff mixed with their hate for life, because what they're doing is they're dealing with that will to power thing. They castrate themselves. And so the same way as antibiotics destroy your, your, your bacteria, your stomach. And bacteria is a dirty thing. We think about it. You know, we think the unwashed masses are covered in bacteria. You don't want to touch them. You'll get diseases and all that. But in some sense, cleansing yourself of bacteria destroys you because it's destroying life. It's destroying nature. And that's this. It's, it's a similar metaphor to that purification of the spirit. What you're doing is you're destroying your will to power, your your uh, your spiritual gut bacteria, your spiritual biome. You're castrating that, and that produces all the symptoms of someone who doesn't who doesn't have that will to power expressing out in the world. Sadness. You're not happy. You overthink because all the energy is going into your head, not out into the world, and you lose touch with reality because you're not participating in it. And so the high caste, the clean man, eventually abstracts his struggle and discovers a cure, a final purification, the elimination of life instincts, the causes of suffering, anti-life behavior, fasting, veganism, vegetarianism, strange diets, celibacy, self-torture, pacifism. And you see all of this stuff all over all religious castes throughout history. They all do stuff like this. They're all about beating life into submission. And they think that there's some cleansing aspect to it and again to bring this back physiologically there is actually there is uh, there is knowledge behind this in some sense that fasting and all this stuff does help you but when you obsess and turn that into a, a, a final goal or you lose touch of the function of fasting such as like allowing your system to clear out a little bit this is where things start getting a little bit weird Yes, it's when you conflate it with good and evil in the context yeah. of the ultimate salvation. Well, unless you do X, you will not be saved. So therefore, you live your life in terms of fear. Because as I imagine that's what a lot of you know religious individuals, at least in the West and all over the world, would be living. It's like fire and brimstone stuff. Now that's decayed in in at least modern Catholicism, modern churches. There is no fire and brimstone preachers around anymore. They're very very scarce. But that is what it used to be. It's like you do this, or else you will go to hell. So, and that's that's I think where most of his critique is going towards for sure. It's very interesting. It goes down the cleanliness route because I think I might have said last time all of Ece Homo, for example, his autobiography is a is a metaphor, a health based cleanliness metaphor for trying to make yourself healthy. 
So he considers that whatever is healthy is aligned with nature. And therefore, if you're not living aligned with nature and you're, and you're just denying all of your instincts in a, well, I'm so afraid of them and, and, and I have to suppress them because I've been suppressing them in, in the past and I have to, then that's not clean. That's not healthy. And so you can always consider Nietzsche a doctor coming into civilization and going, I don't want this to end. So here's my stethoscope. That's the problem. Fix it. Yes. Yes, that's a good frame. And I was reading, as I said, I was reading Antichrist, and he talks a bit about Buddhism. And he says that uh, he respects Buddhism more than Christianity because Buddhism is at least honest about the route to happiness. Christianity says something along the lines of uh, you suffer and then you're happy in the future. Buddhism is at least honest that, like, you're fucked. You're going to live a life of suffering. But the best way to become happy is to promote health. And he says that's just so unbelievably correct. The true way to make someone more happy is to improve their health. And, you know, there is something profoundly profoundly important about that like people are discovering now that changing your diet fixing your gut bacteria will get rid of stuff like depression now imagine if you're stuck in depression and you don't you don't believe that the physical world of nature has any value at all like many hyper spiritual priest like people would be so they 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 won't look they won't even look here for solutions and then they're starting to get this awful depression because all they're eating is grains for example and they're not eating enough meat and um, they're not eating, they're not having a balanced enough diet and all this. And so they start to think that this, this depression is like some type of punishment from God. But then someone comes in and says, you know, like Jordan Peterson, you know, he was struggled with depression and someone comes in and says, just eat steak all the time. And then suddenly he's like, I'm way, way happier. Like, how does that, how do you square that circle? That's very obvious that his suffering was a physiological mistake and his, his happiness was a physiological mistake. And if you don't take that into account, you're literally in denial of reality. That's what Nietzsche is saying. And happiness is tied unbelievably to health. And as you're saying, it's it's a huge, huge theme in his work. And this is why he's so adamant to say, don't separate the physiological roots of a lot of these behaviors and, and over-spiritualize them. That's stupid. That's not what is happening. That's not what you should think. You should imagine that these people are... Are, are making the mistake of spiritualizing something that's physiological. Now, there could be more to it, but that's the basis you have to go on. Well, here's, here's a frame I can throw out to challenge that, I guess, or at least offer an alternative route. So lots of people read Nietzsche's works. As I say, you can consider them holy texts if you want to for sake of argument. And people read their own interpretations into it all the time. But what he's actually saying is, I mean, we presume that we've got it correct. We, we might not, but we think that we do. And or at least we can counter other people's things with quotes, et cetera, et cetera, like you would as a theologian, I guess. You can point things out like, well, what the book actually says is not what people are actually doing. And a way to sort of save Christianity, because I like to save Christianity. <laughs> I am, I'm just trying to smuggle Christ. That is definitely what I'm trying to do. To save it is like maybe Christ is a different phenomenon and that's the people who interpreted those words maybe like saint paul because jung didn't like saint paul either he thought he was a bit of a cuck maybe it's their fault that it became slave morality you know that it, instead it was something else a, a reflection from a collective unconscious or whatever a jungian frame a natural projection as to some kind of truth about the universe and truth about human nature whereas it was the slaves who took it and used it for their own personal benefit i like that frame because that means you don't have to throw it away but I'm going to remain objective throughout this and go, no, Christianity bad. Just for sake of uh, argument. Most certainly, I think there is something to that. And like we're gonna we're gonna blow apart pretty much all religions in the next section. And then at the end, I'll I'll try uh I'll try help 
everybody save face. Like we're going to talk about Jews. We're going to talk about masters, Romans. We're going to talk about Europeans. We're going to talk about Christians. I think there's a way that you can save face for everybody. So uh, a lot of this stuff is very hard. So I don't want to just like throw people into chaos because I don't know either. Like I could be reading it wrong. So I, I will talk about that. And I think there is a way of making, of saving face for Christianity in some sense. And it's a very interesting one as well. So we'll talk about that a bit more at the end. Yeah. Um, but building up to this. This urge arises in the priest, the desire for satiety, peace, salvation. So I've said this idea already. And um, these people want freedom from the will to life. They do anti-life behaviors in this desire to reach peace. What is that? They're doing anti-life behaviors to kill off that libido, that snake, that snake, that desire inside them. You know, you think of it like as sexual terms. They they want they want sex, and they can't get it. Because they're not they're not handsome enough. So what they do is they become celibate priests in order to try castrate that desire, to try kill the desire instead of of going and taking on the world, which they can't beat. They try kill the desire, and so what they do is they're looking for the goal of that is the salvation of having that desire ended. That's that's all it is. It's a psychologization of what they would want. They want that desire to stop. Please stop torturing me. Satan, leave me alone. Stop tempting me. Please stop torturing me and dragging me towards. I suffer because of this. This Satan is causing me to suffer. This snake. Like what is the libido often represented as? The Kundalini snake. The snake in the garden. The, what, what, is, what is between your legs when you think about it? James might have a little bit more of a worm, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Dude, I'm six foot four and my hands are this big. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> You fucking nuts, mate. You fucking nuts. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's 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 that end of suffering. And uh, it's that desire for, like, cut, cut off that snake. Kill that snake. Get rid of that libido. Get rid of that desire. End suffering. Peace, salvation, satiety, cessation, which is the meaning of nirvana from Buddhism. The end of life's toil. The mystical union with emptiness, with nothingness, with the end, with peace, with salvation. And Nietzsche says, isn't that what our desire are craving for our God, our Christian God, the God who has no face, the empty God. You know, the, the the super abstract God promises you that kingdom of heaven, of peace, of nothing. And that's what you want. And I did a little bit of, like, inspired by Nietzsche's philology, I did a little bit of research into the word salvation. I was quite interested in this. This is fucking crazy. It's rooted in the Latin word salus, which was the God of physical well-being. Oh, shit. In that nuts, and uh, this is rooted in the Greek goddess Saria, Sotaria, which was depicted as a woman wearing a laurel of wreath, a crown, a symbol of victory. Now, isn't that what the master aspires to? He aspires to victory. He aspires to winning, and she was related to the Greek god of hygiene, hygienia. Oh my goodness me! That's very smart. Nice research there, boy. Thank you, thank you. It literally only took like, where does salvation come from on Google? <laughs> Google makes me Nietzsche. How does that sound? Go on, Google. And um, so that that's a very interesting thing because you have that abstracted, psychologized idea of salvation tied into physical well-being in its root, unconsciously. And as we saw from Nietzsche's earlier philo philological research, it's very interesting how these things layer up. So the pursuit of cessation turns the priest against these instincts of life. And what do you get? The instincts of life. Oh, pride, cunning, love, romance, passion, ambition, ecstasy. And they call them evil. What are the seven deadly sins? Would you call the seven deadly sins, would you call them instincts to life? You should think about that. Mm -hmm. 
and this is just a random picture, which seems like I blundered a bit. Um, the warrior cast, on the other hand, thrive on warrior virtues. James, would you like to read this? I would love to read it in my beautiful non-Irish voice. So the chivalric, aristocratic value judgments, my friends, are based on a powerful physicality, a blossoming, rich, even effervescent good health that includes the things needed to maintain it. War, adventure, hunting, dancing, jousting, killing the Irish, and everything else that contains strong, free, happy action. The priestly aristocratic method of valuation, as we have seen, has different criteria. Woe betide it when it comes to war. As we know, priests make the most evil enemies. But why? Because they are the most powerless. Out of this powerlessness, their hate swells into something huge and uncanny to a most intellectual and poisonous level. The greatest haters in world history and the most intelligent have always been priests. Nobody else's intelligence stands a chance against the intelligence of priestly revenge. Don't... Yeah, it's such a great quote. Holy shit. Um, now, what's very important to know is that the word he uses is not necessarily intelligent. It's geist, which is where we get the English word ghost from. It's spirit. It's intellect. And so Nietzsche is an int like, as you might imagine, intelligence is like something like IQ. But it seems like Nietzsche's taken more of this frame that once you shove the will to power inside your soul, it forms into a spirit, a, a ghost, a god, a monster, whatever you want to call it. And it forces you into a zone of behaving where you strategize a bit more. And that is almost like, you know, if you if you release that geist out into the world, you develop that 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 very physical intelligence that we might know. And if you shove it out into the social world, you develop like emotional intelligence. And then if you shove it into your head, you'll develop that intellectual intelligence and that cunning and all that. So there's a little bit of an, uh, an implication of that. I'm not quite sure what it means, but you get what I'm saying. It's 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 not maybe the way we think about intelligence. And then um, examples of the word geist are in zeitgeist, spirit of the age, volksgeist, spirit of the people. So so that is um that is just a, a nice little note there to understand what he's saying when he's talking about intelligence. It's um a bit more nuanced. Mm. And here we go. The master versus the slave war in history. Christians, Jews, and Rome. So we're going to do a case study and talk about how this went down in history, how this priestly class fought against the masters and achieved the victory, because that's fundamentally what happened. The priestly slave morality took over the world. And that's where we're at right now. And um, now, James, should we, how are we for time? Should we check time? I think so we should go for We've been going for 92 minutes, it says on there now. So uh, let's let's fucking go for it. I don't mind. I don't mind going for two all, hours. All Christians out there, including myself, who wants Christ to be the son of the eternal living God. Uh, there's going to be heavy Christ bashing. So if this does not abilities, <laughs> if you want to hide from the truth, Nietzsche's beautiful moustache, then uh, do not proceed. And instead, uh, go on to Reddit or somewhere absolutely degenerate. Yes, this is this is pretty this is pretty harsh on pretty much everybody. So I don't think anyone's going to come out of this uh, come out of this with their pants intact. Luckily, he doesn't bring up the Irish because he was too afraid. So I think we'll be all right. They're just potato people. I think we should write a new history where the Norths come in and take over. Yeah, that's what no, we're sort of planning to do. Hierarchy: there are people at the lowest people are the slaves, and they're on the ground in their hands and knees. Potatoes are within the ground; they are below the slaves, and you are like genetically related to a potato. I'll, we'll link to this study in the description down below, which actually <laughs> describes why the Irish are potatoes. So now, it's upsetting, dude. I know, but you've got to stop shadow projecting against great men such as myself. There's um if you ever think about it, potatoes sort of look like eggs. So in some sense, the Irish are like incubating as eggs. 
in our youth and then we burst out of the potatoes as these fully formed um ubermensch that we are the irish hospitals so you get like all the women in there and then the, the the midwives it's like oh it's coming stretch push and she just pops out this little potato thing oh, yeah beautiful yeah, the, oh, yeah, we... a few years so it incubates and then you crawl out with your little beak you're a disgusting creature and go that's an irishman well, if you think about it, like like dinosaurs laid eggs, and they are way better than English people. Like, does every does anybody ever go to a, a museum and be like, "Oh, let's look at a load of a load of dead English people"? That's so cool. No, no, no one ever does that. What they do is they they go and they look at uh, museums of like giant dinosaur heads and all this, and that's that all came from an egg, and that's the same as the Irish. Like, the, you know, what else is eggs, chickens. <laughs> Not very great, is it? Chickens are like the 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 uh, the result of a dinosaur that's experienced slave morality. How about that? How does that yeah, sound? It is, to be honest, it is. Then they say Velociraptors had feathers, which means birds seem to have co-evolved alongside dinosaurs. That's um yeah yeah we are the great chicken tamers. We're we're going to do that to the English soon as well. It's coming. The great chicken. That's no, we, no chicken taming. You are the chicken. You lay the eggs. It's disgusting. We could have. We could have. We could have saved their ass from doing this part and then actually just talked about fucking Irish and English. That would have been interesting. And um, let's let's get into this, though. Let's get into the Roman thing since we're pressed for time. So we need to talk about the most poignant example of this. And Nietzsche calls it the most poignant example. And this was talked a lot about in the 19th century. The relationship between the Jews and the Romans. The Romans were the example par excellence of a master, master empire, if you will. They were just they, they took over the world and it was the, the attitude at which they did it. They were so unbelievably worldly, unbelievably pragmatic, unbelievably ruthless in some sense. Like their entire attitude towards the people they conquered is that they often respected them. Like people often said that they respected the Jews, but they didn't in any way pity, like they, they didn't pity them or something like that. I, something that you hear a lot about the Romans is that when Christians came in su supporting this idea of pity, they were very freaked out because they they did pity them, but pity to them wasn't a uh, wasn't an emotion that had a moral connotation. Pity was actually almost like a disgust thing. So the Romans would come in and like you know feed the Christians to the lions, and the Christians wouldn't even put a fight. And the Romans would all feel sort of pity them. They'd be like, oh, that's pathetic. But we would think there's this emotion of of um, of sorrow for them or some sort. But they were more like. There's no point in killing these Christians per se. It's just it's just worthless. It, there's no there's no great fight. There's no great drama. There's no representation of what life is like. A, a violent fight for survival. It's just it's just sort of this pathetic spectacle in some sense. And so, the the same problem they had they 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 had this attitude. You need to understand the Roman attitude in this way. They're led by Mars. They're led by violence. They're led by dominance. And they took over their empire and they took over Judea. Now the Jews were a very interesting culture because they were the they they were people who who started off in some sense as masters they had their their great israel israeli empire but then they lost that they got conquered by people around them the assyrians and then the jews got conquered by the babylonians and so what nietzsche notes in a separate works is that what the jews should have done his criticism on the jews is they should have got rid of their god they should have said okay look yahweh created our great empire and then we lost that and what the right thing for us to do was to dispense with him and say, all right, he's he's useless. He failed us. We lost our empire. But instead, they stayed loyal to him, and this meant that they started to codify a really profound spin on slave morality because they were out of power, but they were still honoring this god. And this god became more and more about the future, more and more about playing the long way, more and more about prudence, more and more about intelligence, more and more about 
cunning. And so the Jews began to cultivate this in their in their behavior. It became a lot more about about uh, education, a lot more about men of the book in some sense. And they, they became a lot more about codifying their works in the book. They The Romans even respected the Jews because they would come in and the Romans thought everything that was old was good. That was their attitude, which is so different than how we operate today when you think about it. That's actually crazy. But the Romans saw everything. The older something was, the better it was. They loved Egypt and they, they loved the, the Jews in the sense that they had the oldest religion they've ever come across in many senses. And they had this book that proved it. That was like, this book is ancient. This uh, Torah is ancient. And they were like, wow, that is pretty cool. But um, you're you're also our slave. So uh, pay up and, uh, you know, obey us and all this. And so the Jews didn't, the Jews also had this conception of they were the chosen people. They were the people who were, to had the right to be masters because they'd, they'd tasted that before and they had that memory of that. And they had this sort of implication in their heads that Yahweh was punishing them, that they, they were uh, going through a period of suffering. And at the end would come that judgment, like we talked about earlier, where they would take over again and become the masters and become the rulers and, be, and become, um, the, yeah, the, the savior, the save, save themselves in, in that sense. And Yahweh, yeah, would gift them back what they had. So they wanted to, fight back against the romans not actually uh, that 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 blew up into a, a revolution against rome in about after christ died and um, this is when the temple got destroyed for the final time we have the jews have no more temple anymore and that was um their attempt to overthrow the the roman rule and that was in 1884 a.d or something like that i can't can't, can't quite remember it in some sense but um so, so was like uh, 70 a.d but you're so, yeah it's around there Yes, it was around there. So the Jews had this interest in psychology going on because they were fighting against the Romans and they were doing it exactly the way Nietzsche was talking about. They had this resentment towards them. They didn't like the Romans. The Romans were bullies and they were pushing them down. So the Jews were like, how do we defeat these beasts? And like we said, all these same patterns, they couldn't fight them because the Romans were fucking Rome. Like you're not going to fight Rome. You're going to meet Rome in a fair fight. Like there's Rome would destroy you. They're, they're men of Mars. They're led by this way. So the, the purely worldly Romans who didn't even have that sophisticated conception of religion, they just sort of stole what the Greeks had. Like they, the Romans really didn't care about abstractions that much. They weren't, they weren't even that. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't that obsessed with like theories and other worlds and all this stuff. And Nietzsche admired them for this because Nietzsche was quite like this, but the Jews were like, okay, we need to sort of play a psychological game. We need to attack their mind. And a lot of this was unconscious. And so their their unbelievable desire to re, to beat this and their unbelievable resentment towards the Romans, got, kind of shoved them into their head. And it's it's like, have you ever heard of people who need to solve a problem? And what people will say is, okay, what you got to do is go take a nap. Ask the, ask the problem, think about the problem all day, and then go take a nap. And then they'll go take a nap and they'll have a dream and the solution will come up in the dream. That type of idea, you shove into like your unconscious and, and try to get a solution from your unconscious and something deeper and smarter in you produces the unconscious. And so um, what Nietzsche was saying is that these people first really went all the way with slave morality where they were like, all right, they, they got so shoved in their heads by these Roman conquerors. And I think this is, yes, they got so shoved in their heads that what they were like, what they did was they were like, okay, sweet, we've got to invert morality. And so he says, this is where we got the the creation of that first real, um, real religion, real real worldview, real psychologizing of this instinct, where you get what was vulgar and wrong, um, turned into stoic, patient, and spiritual. This allowed Jews to feel noble. 
being like, okay, we're not in power, but we are the stoic patient ones and the power does not matter. Power is actually evil. And so they started to operate this against the Rome or they started to do, do this to preserve their own identity at the very least. But nonetheless, how this ended up is that Rome within 500 years of destroying Judea were bowing to the king of the Jews and the Roman gods are gone. So it shows that whatever this thing that the Jews created, this psychology, you could call it their religion if you want, whatever, whatever their instinct against the Romans manifested as succeeded. And that's what Nietzsche is saying is that these, these races are, are smarter. These, these, these um, slave moralities are smarter. They're, they're more powerful, cunning, and they usually win in the long term. So um, any, any thoughts, James, or should we go into the chess game? Well, let's go into it because this is going to be horrible. Just go for it. Rip the bandaid off. Do it. Okay. Well, okay. We haven't even got into Christianity now. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche somewhat liked the Jews in the same way as the Romans did. They, they saw them as, uh, as um, they just saw them as like, all right, you're right. You're very, very proud people. You fight like dogs. We've beat you though. So admit that we're better than you. That's all we want you to do. Just bow, bow to us. We're better than you. You're kind of weird the way you keep insisting that you're, you're the chosen people. You've got a God. That's kind of creepy. It's not true. Obviously we beat you. So we're the chosen people. Like just shut up and bow but we don't don't necessarily dislike him. The way the Christians, he saw them as like pitiful creatures and that's a very negative thing. It's like disgusting. The Romans saw them as disgusting, vulgar people. And so Nietzsche had this attitude towards the Jews where he was just like, oh man, they 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 played the chess game like nothing else. Like it, he even says that the, the, the energy of the weak, this slave morality that they invented or invented, they codified in its most profound form is what makes the history interesting because in some sense the history of like the strongest always winning like the romans versus uh, versus the greeks and all this this great expression of strength is is a little bit boring because it's it's quite predictable what's going to happen but then the the psychology of of um someone getting everything taken from them and then still finding a way to get back on top like what the jews did like think about what happened after the rome fell is that they they lost their homeland but they preserved this attitude towards the world and this allowed them to disperse among all the nations and remain together with a codified plan where they could um say eventually we will all get back and get our, our nation back get our home back and what did they pull off in the last century this is this is after nietzsche said all this they pulled off the zionist return to israel they pulled it off like the the astounding reality of that is unbelievable it was almost like a 2000 year plan came together you, you just you can't get your head around how unbelievably big the the level of thinking goes into that and um nietzsche definitely admired them for that he was like that is some serious shit that they pulled off there holy shit you i've never seen someone play the chess game quite like that so he had that attitude towards them where he's like look at these guys are representing slave morality not really my thing kind of hate it to be honest but holy shit like you definitely play the game you definitely make the game interesting you're definitely playing in a very interesting way and so the history of mankind would be far too stupid a thing if it had not the intellect the geist of the powerless injected into it and so he's given a very backhanded compliment he's like you fucking rascals fucking that was very well played what you did there he's sort of been a north towards them and so um this is interesting because Nietzsche is somewhat philo-Semitic, if you will. He, he is uh, positive towards Jews in this sense. He doesn't think, he doesn't like the slave morality as like the be-all and end-all, and we'll talk about that a lot more later. But he thinks that there's value in it. And this is the nuance. A lot of people are like, oh, slave morality bad, master morality good. He's being like, no, no, slave morality wins. It's just the resentment is something we need to diffuse. Yes. 
Now, that's a little bit different when it comes to Christianity. It's very, very weird that um, he is he's openly condemns anti-Semites. I think one of the last things he says is all anti-Semites should be shot, but he's very, very anti-Christian. Yeah, when he went mad, it's so funny. Please, everybody, look up uh, Nietzsche's madness letters. They're the funniest things on planet Earth. It was insane. Before he went properly invalid for a few, I don't know if it was a year, a few years, he used to send letters to the kings and queens of Europe or the aristocracy and literally call for the death of the Pope and to call for all anti-Semites to be killed. And it was absolutely insane. He'd sign them all off as Jesus Christ. He'd, he'd sign them as, um, as the crucified. And then he'd sign the next one as Dionysus. And the next one is the crucified. Just going, fucking kill the Pope, boys, and kill all the anti-Semites. Absolute lad. Like, who else, who else can get away with that? It's amazing. Okay. He kills. He, he said, "Kill the Pope." I didn't know he said that. Holy yeah, shit! Death of the Pope loads of times. He said, "The used to die." He might, but in his normal poetic uh, uh, turn of phrase, you know, I highly recommend it. It's a great. Get yourself a, a casual beer, pop it open, and read those. It's a great. Yeah, I might get myself a munchie box. Would that would that go well with the uh, Nietzsche's letters, mate? Right, we'll get a fucking pint of Carling. We'll go down the pub, watch a bit of footy, have a bit of a kickabout. Read some Nietzsche, mate. Be fucking mint. <laughs> Read, read a bit of that um, Nietzsche nonce. I read, read a bit of him, yeah? Yeah. Um, and so he, he didn't like Christianity a lot. And the reason why is because, and he, he, he sort of, he was very critical towards the Germans as well because he, he, he didn't respect the fact that they fell for this slave morality. Like the Jews rejected Christianity. He considers Christianity the, the most profound statement against life. He was like, this is the most insane religion you could possibly come across. It's unbelievably sinister and stupid. He, he really hates it in that sense. He's like, it's very anti-life. And he, of course, as we described, is very pro-life. He's, he's like, everything must be about life. And so um, the fact that the Romans fell for it, he's like, that's just, that's pathetic. I can't believe you fell for that. And I'm, I'm really pissed off that you are now standing on it, protecting it. it this is the thing that's enslaving you. The, the Germans, the Teutons for like for ages resisted it and then they fell under its yoke and now they're getting castrated by Christianity through the slave morality that we talked about before. And he's like, man, like even like the, at least the Jews, when Christ showed up, they were sort of like, no, man, no, we're not going to we're not going to do what you say because you're insane. That's not going to work. That's not going to work at all. Like what? Like submit completely. You're you're an idiot. No. And then Christ started to gather a following. And they're like, we can't let our people believe in this fucking crazy idiot so let's kill him and that was the idea there and the the germans the romans the the europeans who are sort of represented as the romans fell for that and Nietzsche's like are you serious guys like no oh you can't believe you fell for that that's been the source of all your problems and you see a consistent work he says that all the great rebirths of the european spirit came from anti-christian moments like for example when um in the Renaissance, they rediscovered all the Greek and the Roman uh, literature, and they produced the Renaissance, which was a very anti-Christian thing. Like, and what happened after the Renaissance? The Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. He came around and he said, "Man, look, this is this is like the the Catholics are clearly being anti-Christian. Look, they're all they're all making idols of the the Greek and Roman gods, and they're doing all this elaborate art, and they're all degenerates and whatnot." And, uh, and he says, well, let's go back and let's strip it of all that. Let's kill off the life instincts again and go back to Protestantism properly. And Nietzsche was like scratching his eyes out, being like, you fucking Germans. Like we were so close to pulling it off again, creating like a true anti-Christian European moment. And here's the evidence. Like here's the fucking evidence. 
Look at the Dark Ages. Do you think that's a great representation of the life-giving spirit of Christianity? No, Christianity destroyed Rome, brought us into a Dark Ages. We pulled ourselves out of it, and you fucking autistic German you went around and you started, you ruined it. You made everybody forget, you brought everybody off the path again. You fucking idiot. I'm so pissed off. And so he hated them in that sense, and he was very anti-Christian in that way. Well, here's an idea as well with the Reformation in England, for example. Henry VIII and uh, what was it called? Thomas Cromwell. They were on the Protestant side of things. And the Protestant origins in, I, I can say this with some conviction at least, I'm going to be attacked for this, was rooted in Henry VIII wanting to get his nut off. That's one of the reasons why he went Protestant. He listened to what Anne Boleyn was saying about essentially the Protestant laws would allow him to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and he wanted a nut inside Anne Boleyn. So, and so that's why he essentially turned Protestant. There may be other reasons too, but that's what I, I like to turn towards. And what was it marked by? Well, it was Cromwell, who was, a, as far as I'm concerned, a nasty piece of work, going around all the great Catholic cathedrals and going around all the great monasteries and destroying them completely, ripping yeah. them of all of their wealth. Like I read about this story in, in Canterbury Cathedral, which I have a huge affinity for, where they went in, they found the body of one of the greatest English saints, Thomas Beckett. They ripped his body out of the grave, burned his bones alive because he was a heretic, apparently, because he was against the power of the king. That's why he died. And then robbed all of the wealth and all of the jewels. Like if you go in the cathedral now, there's no wealth and jewels. It's just rocks everywhere because it's an Anglican place, whereas the Catholics were marked by relics. And apparently his skull was on the wall for years and there were rubies everywhere and gold. But the Protestants essentially said, well, Cromwell and Henry VIII were like, mine now, mine, I'm taking it. So it's like, eh, is this legitimate theology or is this you just being a resentful prick? Yeah, we'll, so we'll side with the latter one. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that's Nietzsche's fury towards this. So you can see that he has that burning energy towards the anti-Christians. And we'll talk about that more. So we need to, we need to understand, like he, he talks about this in, it's just so profound. The metaphor he uses, it's very intense. So he, he, he's trying to explain that slave morality, never mind any other religions, but slave morality itself, that resentment that the underclasses feel towards the, the people who succeed, that basic emotion of envy is the most dangerous force in world history because envy, forces you to destroy beauty and just like the weak want to always kill the winner we our slave morality our instinct towards resentment is something that we need to tame because it's always trying to kill life and make things more ugly it's trying to it's trying to kill off the best instead of allowing it to thrive and so the jews became possessed with that as everybody does when they become enslaved in some sense and this immense psychological tension as i said shoved them into their unconscious and Nietzsche's trying to say that it it actually made them create the ultimate weapon against the masters. Because it's almost like they as a as a people had this like collective mind and they were trying to solve this problem. How do we beat these Roman fucks? And the Romans, they couldn't beat them fighting, so they needed to come up with a a tool that they could outsmart them with. They are uh, a psychological warfare, if you want. Yes, yeah, so a psyop or something like that. And and what they what it, and he's saying a lot of this is unconscious. What seemed to happen is that they developed a, a, a they needed to develop a pill that would that they they could feed the Romans that would cause them to get master or to get, to get infected with slave morality that would then in turn shove them inside their heads without without force would shove them inside their heads through the kind of psychological hallucination that slave morality is and kill off their life instincts and cause Rome to collapse. And that weapon is Jesus Christ. What these 
what the Jews desired was a figure, a, a pill that they said, and it, Jesus came out of them then. And he went around and he was preaching and he was saying, you know, this is how you should live. You should be completely submissive. And that's like ultimate slave morality. Just completely give up on life altogether. Literally, this world is literally not real. You need to completely give up on it and hallucinate into a, another world. And this is exactly what they wanted the Romans to get infected with, because that would exactly take them out of their, they would shove them into their heads and destroy their ability to act in the world. That's exactly what they needed them. So he, he shows up. And what's even crazier about this is that he shows up and he's preaching a religion of love. So it makes him more digestible to people, to people, um, to people. Yeah. So he's like almost like this poison apple. So it tastes good, but you get poisoned with it. You get poisoned with the mind virus of Jesus, the ultimate slave morality. And so they're, it's, he's sort of saying that their collective mind and the amount of resentment charged up into it, focusing on destroying the Romans or beating the Romans, produced Jesus out of this. But he was, and he was like this beautiful tasting honeypot. And the Romans reached out and took this amazingly. And the Jews had the instinct not to take it. They were like, no, that's way too insane, man. No way are we doing that. It's almost like it was unconscious. It came out of them. And then most of the Jews were, were surprised at just how fucking crazy this bastard was. They were like, no, wait a second. They unconsciously rejected it. They're like, no, we have, we have a very specific plan. We want to, we want to win. We want to get back on top. And so Jesus had to run away. He, as he says, um, go off to the lost tribes of Israel and the Gentiles and the world beyond. And he makes his way via like Paul and all that into Rome, right into the heart of Rome. And they take the bait. They take it. And as I said, within 500 years, Rome collapses in on itself. And what is the state religion just before that collapse happens? Christianity around about 300 AD. They turn Christian. The West begins to collapse. And then the Eastern Roman Empire is shaky, but remains there for over a thousand years. But then it collapses under the pressure of Islam afterwards. And so Nietzsche is saying that the, the Jews produced this ultimate weapon and they fed it to, and it, it fed itself, I guess, to the Romans. And it worked. It was like the ultimate act of psychological warfare. And then... Um, and turned the Romans into pacifists, like amazingly. And this is the, and that was their victory in some sense. Now, unfortunately for them, when that happened, uh, Israel had been destroyed, or sorry, Judea had been destroyed at that point. And so they were no longer in the position to take advantage of it. They were now dispersed among the Romans. And so they, that made history even more interesting again, because that led us up to our modern world. But um, but yeah, that, that, is a, <laughs> that is a damning perspective on Christianity. Let's put it that way. Yeah, Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, I don't personally agree with it because I think it's a reductionist idea. So if you take what the the Jungian school of thought, for example, which I'm very privy to, the phenomenon of religion is not is more complicated than what Nietzsche's letting on. And you can have evidence for this, which is well, he says the Old Testament God, for example, was a a, um, a turning against oneself of that natural instinct and personifying it out into the world, mapping out its own struggles as being necessary and therefore you'll be re rewarded for it. But there are other proto-religions which seem to go against this. This It is, it is a... Um, he doesn't still man it enough. There are other early religions, for example, that engage in very, very strange phenomenon, which have nothing to do with a sense of morality whatsoever. For example, cannibalism. Like cannibalism came around as as wanting, to, apparently, wanting to become one with the unconscious again, because it was when we were starting to become conscious. Now, that's got nothing to do with a, a repressed feeling of morality. It's, it's amoral, in a sense. It was just an acted out ritual. So I don't think he has the uh, the 
insights into the psychology of mythology and religion to say this is exactly the case. But it is definitely interesting. I would say that he, for what it's worth, is correct when it comes to Christians or the vast majority of Christians. But what Christ says and what Christians do is not the exact same thing. So I will reserve judgment on that until now. Apart from that, it's a damning, damning critique and a knockout blow to a lot of Christianity. Yeah, um, and we'll get into possible as i said i want to help people save face because this stuff this stuff can destroy your life pretty much because if you're like adamant christian this this can just destroy your soul pretty much so i'll i'll help people save face like we already discussed how um you know like the, the jews are not like these evil slaves that that um he's not nietzsche's not trying to say that like he's trying to say that they're just playing the the chess game really really well and he appreciates them there is also a possibility that christianity might have um uh, a, a reframe where you can think of it as like oh it's not as bad as you make it out but yeah it is pretty damning though as well like nietzsche sees it as a poison and he's very pissed off that the romans took it and he's even more pissed off that the germans took it and he's just sort of like the europeans are pathetic that they took this and a lot of what he's trying to do i've noticed now is he's trying to snap people out of it and say christianity's fundamentally the thing that's going to destroy you and it's holding you back you're drinking poison you keep drinking more of it and um, you need to stop that or else I guarantee you, you'll be living among orcs and humanity will fall into a dark age that will last till the end of time. So there's nothing you need to snap out of this. It's so important. Well, so um, for example, the, um, the meek shall inherit the earth idea, which has been made famous by Jordan Peterson as to how it's potentially a mistranslation. If Nietzsche would have read it as the meek shall inherit the earth, 110% dude, what he's saying is correct. It's like, just be meek. But apparently meek didn't mean meek. Meek originally meant those which have swords and know how to use them, but keep them sheathed, which is a completely different idea. It's like yep. you read those, I think it's the seven Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And they, when you first read them at a surface level, it's basically just be a pious little weak boy. That's not what Jesus is saying. A lot of it, what he's saying is like, resist not evil. And it's like, there's a psychological reason for that. It's not simply a case of resentment against the master, which is why I tend to side with, the christians who may have taken this have turned it into more slave than it needed to be in the first place and i would love to have seen this is this is why i think the most important conversation you could ever have would be between nietzsche and jung to see what what they can come to agree with that would be amazing to see because apart from that we're now left with this and it's like well what do we do uh, yeah i will um i will get into this i have plenty of thoughts on this and i do think i have some cool solutions and nonetheless nietzsche just has this little tirade that's really interesting where he says if you said this to a modern free thinker and um, i think he uses democrat you could probably think of someone who's a libertarian as well this idea of if you told them this this set of ideas that he just presented they would they would they would respond this way james you want to read it let's go so but why do you talk about nobler ideals Let's bow to the facts, my friends, the people who've won, or the slaves, the plebeians, the herd, the northerners, or whatever you want to call them. If the Jews made this come about, good for them. No people ever had a more world historic mission. The masters are deposed. The morality of the common people has triumphed. You might take this victory for blood poisoning. It, I'm not going to read that. I did not deny it. Undoubtedly, this intoxication has succeeded. The salvation of the human race, I mean, from the masters, is well on course. Everything is being made appreciably Jewish, Christian or plebeian. Never mind the words. Yeah, well, I think actually a different translation is he says, what is there in words? And um, you saying something, man? 
Yeah, you're trying to get me in trouble by reading that. That's I'll, I'll say it though. Uh, he says this victory for blood poisoning it did mix up the races. He means in terms of like there was brown-haired Europeans, like we talked in the first genealogy of morals, and then you had the you know the the quote-unquote master race, royal ruling class who conquered people, like the way the Irish were conquered, like we were conquered by the English in some sense, and then f through Christianity we were allowed over into the English Empire. Now like now loads of people have Irish. And bloodlines in the, over in England, and that's that's a terrible thing for <laughs> fuck that fuck. I said that that's a terrible thing for the the English, uh, the British Empire, because they needed to preserve that distance between the people who they conquered, and so us Irish were now mobbing them and taking over. But he's saying, well, that's um that that's a bad thing. That's what he s sort of means by that, you know? Yeah, my mom and, race tend to come pr primarily from the 60s but really you know the turn of the 1900s um what Nietzsche and what all of europe used to consider racist to be was essentially the um it was way more high resolution than that it would be english irish or different yeah. english than the the swedish the italian etc etc so yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's way more complicated than that and um and um that's it and like even yeah like so it's interesting like i'm used to talking about it like the irish were an untermensch like we were an under race considered by the english to, to be lower in that sense and this is what he's saying it's like the english just like why would they let the irish in that's retarded and there was a big iq as i said before the english were like should we let the irish in or not they're kind of lazy drunkards and they have a lower iq than we do and that was the big Irish question. Over in America, you know, it was like no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. That was the that was the crack, and that was all stemming from this idea. And so this is this is his idea of his steel manning of the way someone would see this, being like, it's not a bad thing that the masters have been deposed. It's a good thing. And then that's when Nietzsche starts going into his idea of weeping. This is where he goes into this this idea of like you have to understand that okay, maybe you see it as a good thing that the the poor, the disempowered, the disenfranchised are now are now are now rising up and, and being given a chance in the world. But what are you sacrificing? What are you sacrificing for this equality, for this, this salvation of the lower, for this pandering to those who are less? What, what are you sacrificing? What are you losing? By letting the Irish in, what are you losing? And that is the excellence of the top. That is the, 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 the steepness of the pyramid upwards. He, we can't lose our grip of the life expressing power of the master instincts because in order to in some sense service the lower people you need to install a slave morality and that kills off the master instincts and that destroys the ability to have life if for example the renaissance burst out with this master instinct and then you go back to the slave morality of the reformation fuck we lose it again and we go into this this kind of cold period and then we burst out again with which with 19th century where the Europeans were like conquering the whole fucking world. And it, it's it's that type of idea. These more intelligent and more powerful over the long run slave moralities tend to beat these master instincts. And this is where things get interesting is Nietzsche's, and this is the nuance, Nietzsche's saying that the master instincts don't aren't as good as the slave instincts. But it's almost like our obligation to understand the purpose of setting up civilization we don't want to treat slave instincts as an end goal they're almost like they're more intelligent and more powerful and we need to somehow blend the two and this is where the ubermensch idea comes in we need to service the life expressing power of master instincts with the intelligence of the slave cunning that um that people like the jews developed mm. This is some of the conclusions. So that is that is what I think he's trying to say. And this is a very important point because I don't I really don't think people understand this about Nietzsche. Is that he is trying to say unify those two. 
He's not saying, you know, become, you know, become Arnold Schwarzenegger and Uber Chad, and that's and that's it, and just go around dominating everybody again. Um, I, there's definitely an element of that, but he's saying that that's not going to take you anywhere. He's not saying master morality is in any way better. He's not even saying it's in any way the winning thing. Master morality loses out to slave morality ten times out of ten. History yep. is the evidence of that. Christianity won. And there's no denying that the British Empire was a Christian empire. And he's like, that's fucking hilarious because they were running around acting like masters, but they're trying to shove it into the rationale of we are Christians. And it's just those two things don't work. It, it's, it's not a it's not a world conquering empire. The only way they could justify it is they were spreading Christianity. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, no, you're 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 living out your desire for conquest and that type of sense. And so. He's saying that the people who were leading us were infected with the slave morality, that priestly class I was talking about. Like why we have the people at the top now and they're, they're the intellectual elite, the priestly class on top of us are people who have got all those psychological trip-ups that we talked about earlier, you know, celibate, castrated, um, anti-life people. And they're going to lead us to a disaster. And so what Nietzsche, I think he was trying to call, is saying what we need to do is accept that position that priestly classes are going to reach the top and what we need to do is have this sort of standard where the only intellectual elites should have a healthy relationship towards life and therefore should start to create a new religion a new morality a new worldview that is orientated towards serving life towards cultivating life and towards making life happen we need to clear out all that previous bullshit and, and get these people in the top of the pyramids who want to promote health in that type of sense we need people who are as smart as the slaves but they they have an they have a an appreciation for life and they want to see it grow in the world and that's what he's talking about he's talking about that sort of blend he want people who perhaps as we said have gone into themselves mastered their resentment come out of it again and decided despite the fact that at one point they resented the life expressing instincts they have now conquered that resentment and they actually want to use the intelligence and the depth they they gained from from winning that inner war to to promote the life creative instincts and that's a very interesting thing how would we get people like that on top of our pyramids because if we let people who have a slave morality what they're going to do is they're going to castrate us all turn us all into orcs and then the entire structure will collapse in on itself because fundamentally if there's no fountain of life at the bottom of the civilization if there's no fountain of life being promoted to the individuals the entire civilization has no fountain of life and eventually it will collapse because the, the great masters are the things that set up these structures like Rome. And then when a slave morality infects it, slowly over time, it, it collapses in on itself. And so yes. um, that, that's a big question. Jimmy, any thoughts? No, no, keep going. Keep going, dude. Okay. And now I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a hand with the Jesus Christ thing. And I don't think I'm actually, like, I actually don't think I'm rationalizing that much here. I really do think this is a very powerful perspective you can take. What Nietzsche has said consistently, consistently throughout this, is that the most dangerous thing in the world is the resentment of the more powerful and intelligent weak. Because they, via the majority and their cunning, take over and then start to oppress the weaker. They start to oppress the, the great, as what happened in communism, as what happened in Christianity. You know, Christianity takes over Europe and starts to kill off the, the mighty Teutons and all that. But the Teutons are stupider. The Teutons are too naive. It's their fault. Nietzsche's saying it's not like oh evil Christians. He's like no, no, they they were just they were just better. 
they were just able to create higher orders where the Teutons couldn't do anything apart from like run out, be really strong, mostly and good looking, but simply just raid monasteries and not create anything higher. And so, um, the the most dangerous thing is the resentment of the weak. Because if you get, say, we got like a world empire. Say we now in globalization, we built this world pyramid, and the people at the very top were infected with this resentment. The intellectual elite over the entire world now, you know, like they got control of all Facebook, Google, they got control of all that internet stuff, and they were infected with a a profound resentment. That would be unbelievably dangerous. Because what they would do is they would destroy all greatness in the world and leave us living among orcs as, as they keep saying. And so what we need, what we need so profoundly is an antidote to the resentment of the weak. Now the masters have that naturally, but the masters aren't our problem. The problem is the people who win are the slaves. And so what we needed was an antidote to this. And that's what Jesus Christ was. When you think about it, Jesus Christ was the, and Nietzsche compliments on him on this. Jesus Christ was the example of a slave who did not resent a slave who loved. He was an example of someone who was profoundly noble in the way he carried himself. He was the antidote to the danger of the slave, of the, of the resentful person. And in some sense, you can imagine if, if he was a weapon going out to destroy Rome, created by the Jewish unconscious, perhaps he was also the antidote to the hate of the Jewish unconscious, because it hurts. It was probably, hurt, like, as we were saying, hate hurts. Hate goes inwards and it hurts you. And the Jews would have been there stewing in their hate. They would have been, it's, it's painful in that sense. It's painful to be, to be thinking that way. And perhaps Christ was the, 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 the shadow. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the Jungian idea of the shadow forms. And this figure was Jesus Christ. And it was like, here's an antidote to this. Here's a way you can purely love. And that's probably why so many Jews converted when he first showed up. They were like, fuck, this is actually the way forward. And the big deal with Christianity, Christ's big drama was him fighting against the Pharisees, the people who possess the religion. And so in some sense, he may be the antidote to resentment. And what's universal about him is he's not the antidote to the Jews, he, like quote unquote, he's the antidote to resentment as such of weaker people, of powerless people. And that's why he became a very useful force because you inject resentment into a super society like Christian Europe, and it stops the weak people from trying to destroy the royals and the masters. It actually, in some sense, preserves the hierarchy because it takes the resent, resentment of the weak and coaches them on how to understand it, how to how to use it properly. Like, I guess you could say a a Christian lower class is not necessarily a bad lower class. They're not they're not always trying to think of revolt a, a re revolution. They're they're very you know, they work hard, they're, 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 they keep their heads down, they're quite happy, because if there's no resentment in you, it's actually easier for you to be happy in some sense. And so they empower you in that way. And that is, um, that is an interesting steel man, because as we said, the, the profound influence Rome, Christianity and Judaism had on, and Judea more specifically, had on history is, it's unbelievable. Jesus Christ, whatever he was, changed everything there's no denying that like it is almost like a credence to the idea that like holy shit he, he he probably like he seems like he was a god considering the influence he had like it, it was fucking huge beyond belief and if we want to say on one sense maybe it was this elaborate psychological warfare thing produced by the unconscious of the oppressed people maybe it was like that's a very interesting frame Maybe this is the other frame you could take is that he was actually some type of divine antidote to the resentment of the weak that took us through this ion. And what I think Nietzsche is worried about 
specifically is the universality of Christ's pacifying power. He's sort of saying that the resentment, the, the antidote for the resentment, which is somewhat castrating your instincts, may be correct for people who are slaves. Maybe it's a good tool for slaves. It teaches slaves how to suffer nobly and it gives them an identity. And it is in some sense makes them more noble, but it's probably not right for the strong. Maybe we need the strong instincts in place and we need to re we need to redeem that stuff and balance it with this. Maybe the people at the top need to be anti-Christian in some sense. And it's a scary idea and it's, it's getting a bit rationalizing there, but you see what I'm saying is that maybe Christ was that antidote and he has that historical value and he stops the, the resentful instincts of the lower people from turning vengeful and destructive. And people interpret that as like, you know, uh, it's a it's a brainwashing thing. But maybe maybe there's something to it. Maybe it's like it, it it makes you happy and it stops you from doing the French Revolution, which people thought was going to be this great overthrow where everybody would be happy. But in it, it just ended up in a retarded bloodbath that, that took ages to resolve. And so maybe there should be people who are beyond good and evil and everybody else should understand, should have the humility. And Nietzsche is huge in humility, should have the humility to say, I sure, sort of got to be Christian. I'm not better than Christ. Christ is a man who didn't resent. He was a slave who didn't resent. I'm a slave who resents. Christ is a better person than me. And then the people at the top need to, the intellectual elite, as he's saying, need to cultivate this strong instinct, this will to life, and feed it in some sense. And so what I think he's saying is going forward, if we want to create a religion that will stop us falling into the world of orcs, what we'll need to do is reinvent somewhat of a united perspective where we have a figure who is like Christ can overcome the resentment of the slave, but also has the attitude of a master. And I think that's what he's saying is the Ubermensch. Jimothy, any thoughts? Yes, I know this is where it gets really exciting. And this is where Jung's work offers a buffer against some of this stuff, but also agrees with Nietzsche. And this is this is how I think that it works. So you can say that resentment is the worst thing possible for the sustaining of a human society, a group, tribe, civilization over a long period of time. We can say that that's bad. We don't want that. And then you can say, well, Christ didn't have any resentment in his heart. And that's actually true. At least what the stories say is true. But you have some problems here. So you had Christ, whoever he was, was a man. He was at very least a, a Jewish rabbi by descent. And what there are many things which could have happened. So he could have literally been the divine son of God, maybe. Who knows? Or he could have been a man who breached the archetype of the self in Jungian psychology, which is one of the things Jung would have posited. Or he simply could have been a guy who, because of the Jewish um, collective unconscious, feeling really repressed, projected the self onto Christ himself. It's like, that would be interesting. So that's why Christ was able to go ahead and say all the wacky things that he was saying, because they came from a deeper part of the human unconscious, a projection on the self. And also that's potentially why some of the gospels read in a more propagandistic manner, in a perfect manner. So, okay, what happened then with Christianity? Well, you had the Catholic church, which came up and they picked on characters like Peter and Paul and was like, this gives us divine, uh, divine authority to go and build our church. But in doing so, this is something you'll notice as well. They shut down a whole bunch of the sects and a whole bunch of the texts. And these later became known as Gnostic texts in the Nagamadi library, for example, we uncovered these in the 40s. And that gave a totally different picture to Christ, completely and utterly different. The Gnostic idea was through gnosis, through a secret knowledge, through overcoming something within yourself, somewhere you weren't yet, you would become a Christ. You wouldn't, you wouldn't follow Jesus. You would become a Christ yourself. 
So listening to your own intuition and overcoming your own personal demons, letting your light shine, you'd be on the same path with Christ. So what the Gnostics are suggesting is the same thing that Jung suggests in the Red Book and similar to what he suggests in Ion, for example. We all have to go and become Christ's. Very, very different to normal Christianity. So it's twisting it on its head and saying, because you were slaves with your slave morality, you twisted the true words of Christ. What you need to do is to become a Christ. And what is Nietzsche saying? You need to become or we need to create an uber mensch. What is the if you've watched our ion videos, for example, what's the aeon of Aquarius? That which can carry the unconscious himself. You become your own nexus, the uber mensch. It's all those same ideas seem to be coming together in, in one particular place. And at the root of this as to why this is a necessity at the very least to consider is that there is no resentment within that. There is only a listening to the will of God. And in many ways, that's what Nietzsche is doing too. Through reading his books, you're picking up a will of God in many ways. What does Nietzsche think? But then Nietzsche says specifically, you ubermensch will transcend even me. You'll be listening to your own will of God. So perhaps that's the way Christianity needs to go. That it actually offered a true unification between slave and master. The actual psychological truth, if it was a breaching of the self, and that seems highly feasible. And it also stacks up with what Nietzsche tapped into, which was the ubermensch. And that is very, very exciting. And I hope that is the case moving forward. That's the only way I can see this stuff all working out. Otherwise, it, Nietzsche was right or Jung was right, or Christianity was right. No one's going to go back towards Christianity. Which it's, not, it's just not going to happen, even if it's correct. We're, we're done. We're the lost sheep again. So you've got to pick one frame or the other, and I hope we can unify the two together. The lost, the lost sheep of the house of Boyo. That's what's going on. That's what we should call this new religion, the way of the Boyo. Way of the way of the fucking boil, um, yeah. Like, and if and this, I just I have to say, like, what it's it's what is most simply coming out of Nietzsche is that Christianity is just wrong, and we need to go to a new religion that's sort of a Hellenized perspective of Rome. I'm putting that up to save face. Perhaps that's true, and um, these are very complicated things. I don't really know, but there is a huge emphasis with Nietzsche where he's saying we need to get rid of Christianity. We need to sort of take a Roman attitude towards the world. And that is a that is a very very big thing he's trying to say. Like it's it's a very fundamental line. Now there could be more, like you know that he took that leap forward into the psychology, and maybe you can uh, find stuff to balance them out, such as the Gnostic text, which he wasn't aware of. But at the same time, there is also that problem where he's he's saying it it, it needs something new. We need a new hero. Christ perhaps brought us to the end of this ion, but now we need the Ubermunch. Now we need a new person who represents upward going, growing bursting exploding creative life upwards and that type of thing and uh it's scary thoughts but at the same time there, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's there's a lot of very base ideas you can take out of this and one of them is the obsession with health and vitality and they um, what type of a character would you get if you flooded someone with health and vitality and and you get a powerful a strong naturally happy person a naturally creative person and i think that blends quite a lot with um and another interesting angle you can take to this is the second coming of christ as young said was this desire for uh, the the judgment at the end when christ comes back with his sword because he wasn't capable of doing that when he was a slave so he comes back and he balances with his opposite and that's almost like implying that after the end of this big ion we will have that, that reunification and it maps up a lot with Nietzsche showing up and being like pointing towards the Ubermensch, almost like a prophet on the hill. So that stuff is coming. Yep. Nonetheless, I think we've put the case out and I think we should do questions and all that. You have anything to say though, sir? You were saying something. Yeah, so I think Nietzsche, 
he, to take his frame, you have to accept the idea that consciousness doesn't evolve. It's a form of psychological law. So that puts him at odds with Neumann, for example. You can't have an evolving consciousness. There is just the way. So, for example, consciousness within the aeon of Pisces, which sounds wacky if you've not seen our ion lectures. We're saying it somewhat metaphorically. Within the Christian aeon, psychological law would dictate, if you take Dostoevsky's frame, for example, that you can't go back to the old way of doing things in terms of going back to a more pagan way. You can't. So you have to accept that that's not true. And that there's no also that there's no wisdom in the unconscious forces, for example, that there is you. And the unconscious forces represent simply drives such as hunger and thirst and a will to power, but there's no autonomous forces, no archetypes that exist down under there as well. So, and so it's a big shift and a big, uh, you have to take a side essentially with this. So we, we will, we will talk later where he discusses the soul and, uh, that's the next lecture. And that exactly. Is a, exactly. That is an interesting take. And, uh, but if you're going to take him, you're going to take the man, what he's saying, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much like we got to go back to our old conception of gods. I was reading about the way he saw gods as well. Something else we have to get into. There's some, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you need to make the context towards getting these really big questions. But nonetheless, this lecture, we were talking about his general theory on resentment and how that has played out in history. And my God, is it fascinating? And worse still, it is accurate. The world of orcs. Are you fucking afraid or what? The world, the world of orcs versus the world of norths. Which side will you be on? Beautiful. We have. Let's go into the the patron questions from our beautiful. Beautiful. I'll just say hello to a few people here. Doom, honey. We've got Boyoler, Joshua. North means are now my favorite. Damn fucking right. I hate Google. I hate Google. <laughs> what What is Greg's, James? Yeah, I think he knows. Uh, someone told him it's a bakery. What is Greg's? We're not a true Northerner. Greg's is apparently the best. I've never even gone into Greg's. It's just like why they're just sandwiches. Someone here is calling Nietzsche a slave and saying it tainted his observation. Um, Nietzsche can a carnivore, kind of kind of pastry, but from memory their class. Chain Vegas. Oh, a few vegans in here. Yeah, Nietzsche. The current I hate yeah, yeah. Um how does it happen? So we've got Unica Chen. How does it happen? Men today seem like hen pecked cooks. Let's be Uber Menno. Norths, man. That's all you need to you just go find a north. And check out a north and it'll teach you everything have a pint of carling that's like your secret magic potion to becoming a true manly man yes yes um we should check out islamic eschatology keep up the great work boys thank you sir appreciate that do don't, don't elite secret society solve this problem so that's that's a very good question i'd actually like to talk about briefly um like yes Surely elite secret societies are in some sense doing what we were discussing there. Like the British Empire was codified by an occultist, essentially doing black magic. Because in some sense, you can't be Christian. So what you need to do is you need to go underneath and say to yourself, well, how do we express power in the world without pissing off the, the Christians? And that is um, by going occult and by forming those technically christians but not in a recognizable way it was like christ exists as this kind of meta archetype and i still love christ and christ is like the good guy but there's all these other gods and demons and forces as well that just sort of project so it's an unrecognizable christianity but yeah you're right and uh yeah so like in england they had um john doe was it john d yeah john doe was like that typical name I, people use. Actually to, I won't do this but uh but i'll say it anyway i'd love to film a video in the local library to me Chet chetham's library where they have a table roped off where john d summoned a demon that'd be brilliant jesus christ yeah so that, there you go like there's john d and the brits are mad into their occult and all that shit 
and they fucking Brits, yeah. and they they were uh, they were doing that the whole time. Like John John D was like, right, he codified this dream of the British Empire. So you can say, in some sense, you're trapped by the dream of the kingdom of God, and to do the occult is to free yourself from that dream and go for a new dream. But it's fundamentally black magic, anti-Christian in that sense. And so, secret societies and elite secret societies and all that, yeah, they do that most definitely. That's their function, you could say. And that makes perfect sense. That's what they're doing. Like it's 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 possible that Nietzsche was talking about that in a in a in a in a way that's um in some sense fearful. And if you think about it, like people often talk about like the Illuminati and all that. But then if you're like the steel man, then and I'm not part of that shit. So 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 put that gun down, motherfuckers. But if you're the steel man, then what they seem what they would be saying is that there was this vast vista of, of ancient knowledge that that people had. And religions like Christianity came along and and um, destroyed all that knowledge. You know, like Christianity was dogmatic. You only had one book, and they got rid of the Roman knowledge and all that stuff that was that was caught up. And then eventually they rediscovered it and all this. And you could say that the Illuminati, which showed up in Germany, stuff like that, was an attempt to to protect this and try manifest it into the world again. And um, yeah, may, like maybe that's what's going on. Maybe these people were doing this in the shadows. And I guess Nietzsche might be saying that maybe we should change the religion altogether in order to allow this to just be more upfront because it's a bit, it's a bit um sneaky. It's a bit, it's a bit um it's a bit unhealthy the way it's going on now. And I even see this in people like Alexander Dugan. He says that the way that we need to lead in the future is to blast the lower classes with entertainment like george orwell was saying entertainment bread and circuses and complete them in this keep them in this derp state where they don't really know what's going on and then um lead from the top with our as the intellectual elite this is dugan he's a russian theorist that people talk about a lot and he says that i think in geopolitics and that's sort of the the whole idea of the occult rulership if you will yeah. and that is i think the problem where you have a uh, 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 I guess you would say, quote unquote, the slaves or the weak or the powerless, and you need to rule them without triggering their resentment. And so maybe that's what's going on if you're steel man and all that, or maybe if you're going to flip the whole other way, it is Satanism that's going to bring the world to ruin and destroy Christianity. So who knows? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, questions, sir. Questions. Yep. So uh, what we do? So we we take questions now from our beautiful patrons. You can uh, sign up if you want to. Description down below. And uh, where where is it? I had one here. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So this is actually one related to Nietzsche. I'm going to try and pick ones that are um, most related. So if you've asked questions and it's not related to Nietzsche, we will get to them. Don't worry. But I'm just going to prioritize Nietzsche ones for the time being. So this comes from Self-Made Boyo. Are you ready, Stefan? Yeah, yes. It gives a quote from Nietzsche here from the birth of tragedy, which is as such, knowledge kills action. Action requires one to be shrouded in a veil of illusion. This is the lesson about Hamlet, not that cheap wisdom about Jack the dreamer who does not get around to acting because he reflects too much out of an excess of possibilities, as it were. No, no, it is not reflection. It is true knowledge, insight into the terrible truth, which outweighs every motive for action, both in the case of Hamlet and in that of the Dionysiac man. So that's Nietzsche's quote. And then self-made Boyo has a little addendum here. He says, I too have a certain fear of acting in the world and working to manifest my visions of a great life. However, I'm always attributed this to the former idea that it's my hyper-reflective tendencies that um, is my hyper-reflective tendencies that causes this to happen. I'd love to hear you guys delve into what Nietzsche is trying to say here. So you can take it away there. James, do you have any thoughts? Because I'm going to just read the quote again to try to figure it out. I'm, what I'm trying to say is I don't know for the moment, but I will in a second. 
Yeah, it's a very, very complicated idea, and I'm not 100 110% sure. So, oh, oh, yeah, I get it now. But keep going. Sorry. The... Yeah, he's making a distinction here about about knowledge. This knowledge kills action, and you and you need to you need to have. So Hamlet didn't take action essentially because he saw the truth, and that that outweighed all of his motivation for action. But Nietzsche was very much in favor of action. So you might read into that that Nietzsche didn't want you to know the truth. That's not the case. Nietzsche has another quote, which I think buffers this quite nicely, which is something like the measure of a man's soul is how much truth he can he can take on himself and still keep going. So it's essentially it's that case of you need to look at the truth or else you won't be able to strive forward nobly and properly in, a, in an aristocratic manner. But, uh, but at the same time, you need to have a strong spirit that will have a great health in the face of all of that. So rather than be a little cuck like Hamlet, you actually go and you take action properly. Because the story of Hamlet is definitely he saw the truth and the malevolent nature of life and it sent him essentially insane. And he started getting paranoid at things, I guess, seeing ghosts, you might say. So it's a case of you need to toughen up bucko. That's what I read into that. But I'm not entirely sure. I am currently reading The Birth of Tragedy again properly. So maybe I can uh, I can give you a proper answer to that in the Discord when we... Um, when I get through it. I absolutely want us to do Hamlet. I want to do some Shakespeare. Now, not because he's English, James. Before Francis you... Bacon or Edward de Vere, because uh, Nietzsche thought that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare, which actually fits into your Illuminati thing you were just saying. But it means, because implicit in that is the, the elites lie to the people. So, hmm. Yeah, could be, could be. The, the arcane secrets. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, what, so what, what I think he's saying here is that there, there's... Knowledge kills action, as James was saying. That's that's obvious. Like overthinking things puts you in this like derp state, and you're like, oh shit, what do I do? What do I do? What do I? Do? And then um, that's that can be pathetic if you are rationalizing. So like a very basic example of this is you're with a chick, and you see her, and she's or did you see a girl, and you're like, oh she's beautiful, but you say, oh she probably won't like me. She's probably busy. Oh she's probably stuck up. Oh she's probably not. And your head starts being like excuse, 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 excuse. And then what you do is you start to think about those excuses. You form a theory of women and then you go online and you start a community about, you know, women are always stuck up, aren't they? And then you start spinning down this like absolute like spurg uh, direction towards studying, like going into that stuff. It becomes this really delusionary knowledge and it's a fake knowledge and it's just your rationalization to escape doing action. Jung actually said this was the anima problem. The problem with the anima is that when you don't face the anima, what you do is you get shoved back into your head and become a rationalized theoretician. And you can see this in pretty much all men until they conquer the anima problem is that they're very in their head. They're very like, knowledge, they, they almost like attach their libido to their knowledge, to their worldview. And so, um, and that, that becomes a very interesting thing because you can feel that in people sometimes, like you get in arguments with them and if you prove them wrong, they, they freak out almost as if you've like, uh, you know, stole their wife or something like that. So it's it's that type of idea. That's a fake knowledge. A true knowledge would be observing the world as it is and and seeing just how fucking intense it is. Like the bleakness of the world. There is no God. There is no there is no in nothing. Like just that nihilism that Nietzsche promotes, that pessimism that like Schopenhauer saw. This is bleak, horrible, true. And the justice is only a, a construction that we impose with whoever is the most power and therefore power is the only thing that matters. And no one's going to save you. There is no afterlife. Your pain is no meaning. You give it meaning, all these type of things. And this can be stunning. This can hold you back in some way. But Hamlet's contemplation of that is more noble than the contemplation of, of, uh, of the other dude. Because the, the other dude is like a rationalized and weak coward in some sense. Whereas Hamlet's actually facing with the real problem, being like, oh, God, 
What if it has no meaning? But if you can overcome that, if you can um, sort of come, if you can reach that, what Nietzsche called the strong pessimism, the position where this is the world we live in, there is no meaning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to enforce meaning on it. I'm going to push, stamp my meaning onto the world. Then you can form a position of strength that is unparalleled, that's almost impossible to reach. And I guess you could call that the Dionysian man. That's the soul of the Dionysian man. He almost understands that there is no, there is no illusion. There is no it, good is or the the everything's going to work out is a bit of a delusion. And so, in some sense, he gives himself over to the quote unquote will to power, to the the fury of the moment, and that becomes the the basis for his personality. And that's the summary of Hamlet. Hamlet, the great, the the, the most profound lines in Hamlet is that moment at the very end where um some guy comes into hamlet and, and says are you going to kill the dude or something like that or it, it, what happens if your death is going to come because hamlet's getting ready to kill claudius and he says if it is not now so he's talking about his death if it is not now it is to come um and then if it is not if it is not to come later it will come and he just says this perfect line the readiness is all so he's sort of saying this is his moment where he accepts destiny he accepts the pessimism he accepts the bleakness he says i'm going to die amor fati that's essentially what he's saying. I'm going to die. I may as well. I may as well live before that happens, and that's finally his overcoming of the bleak pessimism. And he becomes the Dionysian man, and he goes out and he avenges his father. He gives in to the the instinct, and then um, that's summarizes Hamlet. That's the great tragedy at the end. So uh, yeah, it's interesting as well that um, Hamlet goes. I mean, it's interesting to say that Hamlet goes mad. I'm not quite sure that that's right, but he goes through a state which looks like he's mad, something like that. And, yeah. uh, and, and Nietzsche, he, he revered Shakespeare a lot, but he thought Shakespeare had also gone through this madness himself. Again, this nuanced madness. And that the reason why his works were so profound is that he had experienced the richness of life and come to terms with this. And, 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 and that's, that's so in other words, Hamlet contains a deep truth about mankind and Hamlet has to overcome all of his all of his cuckiness and and tragedies. That's why it's a tragedy of Hamlet before he can finally go ahead and do that. And of course, it ends with him dying, which isn't so good. Which, uh, again, as you're saying, that amor fati moment, which is yep. Yep. very, 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 very profound. And that is that idea of you can spend your whole life being a man of knowledge where you're rationalizing and avoiding the truth, and that's cowardly. Or you can go through that unbelievably intense moment where you see the bleakness of the world, but that will give you such depth that you will actually, it will truly free you in some sense. And I think that's what Nietzsche is trying to say is that the, some people, avoid with knowledge other people face knowledge it destroys them and then they are reborn into something new yeah and that you have to be a, a strong man of character you're saying in order to survive that rebirth because he also didn't think everybody could do that which is a damning thing because it does destroy most people and send you mad you might even say that it destroyed him because we still don't know how he died it's true yeah it's true um shall we take another one and then i think we're gonna have to bounce uh yes let's see let's see here there's no more which relate directly to Nietzsche. There's one on astrology, if you want to tackle that. I'll, um, go, go for it, I'll let you take this from no more than anything. All right, okay. So this one also comes from Self-Made Boy. He says, how does astrology graft onto the psychological realm in a manner by which alchemy does? In alchemy, there's an apotheosis to the endeavor, the lapis philosophorium. And all the processes within the practice are an attempt to bring forth that product. What is the lapis of astrology? Is, is it the astrological synchronous birth of a child born 2,000 years ago? Well, self-made boyo, I don't think that there is an apotheosis to astrology. In fact, Jung, uh, he, he laid out specifically that all astrology claims is that when a child is born, that the stars reflect their inner personality. 
That's all that it's ever laid claim to. And in the same case, like you might say in this, in terms of what Christ said and then what the Catholics did with Christ's words were a reflection of the two. What astrologers do may not be a reflection of what astrology is. So you get people who are obsessed with horoscopes, for example. They're going, well, in the next month, uh, you might have something related to your relationship, which will cause a bit of a challenge. And everyone goes, ah, oh, I knew it. It's because my Pluto was in Sagittarius, wasn't it? It just sort of becomes non-functional. But there is an interesting idea in terms of, um, not that I believe this, professors but that you have a rising sign in astrology which is in the first house which is your inner personality and then you have your sun sign which is who you are meant to be because the sun is like the solar hero right so the, whoever and the sun's associated with leo hero lion etc and so the purpose of a man's life through looking at the stars and mapping this out was to go from his first house through to his uh, sun sign so it mapped out your vision that's the Jungian approach to it anyway Liz Green talked about this that, that that was what you were meant to do apart from that there is no apotheosis it is purely a reflection where you look up and you can see the past present future and a map of your own soul yeah I'm, I'm not really good on astrology so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to bounce off that shall we wrap it up there though let's wrap it up dude let's go right people if you enjoyed that and I hope you did and if you would like to talk about these complex topics uh, such as resentment such as the power resentment has in your soul and how to overcome that in our slave states since we are ruled by the illuminati and these evil christians and all the bad people if you'd like to overcome all that stuff and become juicy and become a boyo reach the way of the boyo you can actually chat to myself and james if you want boyo alert at gmail.com hit us up on there we do consult with people we do talk with people so you can hit us up and we'll do a free session the first session is almost always free so you can you can have a chat with us that'll be great and then we'll see where we go from there we'll have a chat we'll talk about this stuff we can talk about all this this resentment and all this stuff and yeah, you can see how we can bring your life forward and whatnot so i think that is all from us james any last words that's everything no my last words is i love you that's it i appreciate you not you stefan the the audience i love you i appreciate you have a wonderful day do not get resentful and uh, stay stay juiced as much as that phrase is disgusting but stay juiced how about how about how about your all nonsense how's that sound you fucking stop nonsense. being a fucking nonce and pick up a fucking pint of carly mate you're not a fucking yeah. me talk to you later people talk to you later bye bye